Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we have some big updates from the Stronger by Science universe. We've got a research review segment in which we discuss multiple beta alanine related supplements. Greg's got a research roundup segment where he talks about the relationship between strength and hypertrophy potential, sticking points, training frequency, non-nutritive sweeteners, and more. We've got a coach's corner segment where we talk about how to modify your pressing exercises in the presence of elbow and shoulder pain, and we wrap things up by answering a few questions from listeners. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a very special, very temporary guest co-host, His name's Greg Knuckles, and Greg is the founder of Stronger by Science. He completed the Master of Arts program in exercise science at UNC Chapel Hill. He's held three all-time world records in powerlifting in the 220 and 242-pound weight classes, and he's coached hundreds of athletes both in person and online. Greg, thanks for joining us. I I really hated that. I hope that does not become a standard part of the intro. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a pleasure. Thank you. For, thank you for having me on. Uh, how's life treating you, Trex? Things are good with me. What about you? Doing pretty well. Awesome. So we got a lot to cover in the show today. Uh, so let's jump right into some good news. And I would be happy to start us off here. So my good news involves science, which is a good thing. Generally, uh, team science over here. So I was looking at the news and I saw that some researchers implanted uh, a microchip into somebody's brain. Uh, This gentleman was uh, paralyzed due to a spinal cord injury in 2007. He had lost all movement below the neck. But by using this uh, implanted microchip technology, he was actually able to, uh, to write sentences Uh, using just his brain. Uh, Pretty incredible stuff. So uh, this microchip, uh, they kind of developed this interface where he could kind of do like a thought to text kind of program. Um, And so, yeah, he was able to just kind of think the words that he wanted to to say, and then uh, it worked. So it it was pretty incredible. And like, I'm not going to like pretend to be a neuroscientist, uh, just for the sake of the good news segment, but it was really impressive. And I'll put the link uh, in the show notes if you want to get more information about how the microchip system works. Um, but basically, there's these two microchips. They're about the size of a baby aspirin. They were implanted one millimeter into the gentleman's brain in 2017. And uh, yeah, it, it's pretty incredible stuff. So um, the guy basically was instructed to imagine that he was using his hand to write on a notepad. And then the computer converted those thoughts into text on a computer screen. And uh, the speed and the error rate that they recorded in this experiment uh, were, were really uh, quite impressive. So really exciting stuff. It's always great when when you see these kinds of stories of, of scientists doing this really impactful work uh, in you know creating new technologies and new systems that can really impact people's lives like that. So uh, score one for team science. Hopefully this will be something that can be scalable and, and kind of get out there and really help a lot of people. I, I wonder if this was like independently funded research or if this was uh, kind of like the first consumer usage of uh, old DARPA research. I have no idea. Yeah. So uh, do, do you know about DARPA? I've heard of it. Okay, so I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's um, 
It's basically a, a funding body backed by the U.S. Armed Services that funded, uh, like provided funding and just like basic science research grants for things that they were hoping would eventually have military applications. Uh, and, and I think it like, so probably the most well-known DARPA funded thing is probably the internet. Um, but I remember when I first learned about DARPA in college, uh, there was just like, uh, I, I think, I think there was a Wikipedia page that just went through stuff that people knew about that DARPA was funding at the time. And it was probably funding other stuff as well that people didn't know about. But one of the things that they were funding was what sounds like this. So this sounds kind of like the first step of what they were working towards. Basically, they wanted a way for soldiers in the field to do what would basically amount to like psychic communication. So if like people were going in somewhere where, you know, theoretically there are enemies that could hear them, they're trying to make as little sound as possible, like people on a team being able to communicate with each other without having to be able to talk. So like purely just brain to brain communication. And this sounds like the first step of that. Like you can convert thoughts to words and then, you know, on the on the back end you would need a way to convert those words to something that's interpretable. So yeah, at this point you could probably just do it via like an earpiece, but I think they were thinking communicate directly from one brain to another without any sound waves whatsoever. Um so anyway, that's that's what this made me think of. Well, that would certainly be cool as well. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah, so uh, for, for my good news, uh, I've talked about this before. Generally, looking for good news stories just makes me depressed because um, oftentimes they take the very de- depressing form of here's this major problem in the world that could be easily solved and here's someone doing individual actions that, uh, you know, should be kind of like a problem that could be solved collectively. Uh, and anyway, I don't like it. It bums me out. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about some, some positive things going on in my life, just trying to get the good vibes rolling. So, uh, first back at trivia, I'm super stoked about this. Uh, it's, it's the one, uh, it's the one thing I do with other people outside of work throughout the week uh, until the weekends. Uh, I'm very, very extroverted, so it's it's like a huge felt need, but I obviously didn't do it uh, throughout the pandemic. So feels good to be back at Trivia. If you happen to live in or near Raleigh, North Carolina, and you want to do some really, really fun trivia, uh, you should come to Hammer Trivia with Thor at Ruckus Pizza in Mission Valley. Uh, it is 8 p.m. on Wednesdays, and it is the best trivia I've ever done. Very fun. Second positive thing, NBA playoffs are here. Best time of the year. Uh, it's like a month and a half long celebration of all of the best things about sports uh, because the best sport is, of course, basketball. Uh, and honestly, this has been the best first round of the NBA playoffs that I can remember. Uh, generally first rounds are mostly snoozers. You might get a competitive four five matchup or a competitive three, six matchup. Uh, but ultimately you generally don't care about those too much because they're probably just going to get smacked in the later rounds anyways. Uh, but overall, like 
there have been pretty competitive matchups up and down the board throughout the playoffs so far, uh, and it's it's been great. Um, so I, I'm very excited to see how that goes. Uh, third positive thing, uh, so I talked about on the last podcast, I'd recently uh, broken my arm, or I think I said I thought I had broken my arm, but it hadn't been confirmed yet. I don't remember. Anyway, I did break my wrist uh, and jacked up some stuff in my elbow as well. Uh, it's still not 100%. Obviously, broken bones take a while to heal, uh, but function is returning a lot faster than I anticipated, so uh, I've got mostly full range of motion back. Grip is still really weak, but I can do activities of daily living again uh, without too much discomfort, so uh, that is very positive. Um, on that topic, do you mind telling people what happened? Just so I've been getting a lot of nasty messages <laughs> a- accusing me of being responsible. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we Eric and I had a dispute about. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to get into it too much, but something related to the business finances. Uh, I stormed out of the room. I think I was justified in doing so. Uh, and he pushed me headfirst down the stairs. So uh, hopefully that clears everything up. But we we have buried the hatchet. Yes. Uh, and we won't be making those mistakes again, which is perfect for both of us. Correct. Um, it, it is funny, though, because I did get some joking messages uh, accusing me of harming you and breaking your arm. But it reminded me when I was in high school, um, me, me and my best friend, uh, we played in a three-three-five different defense in football. Mm-hmm. So he was the free safety over the top in the middle, and I was the strong safety. Uh, so we played next to each other on the field, and we played this really big game that was televised. And he actually broke his arm during the game. And we were hanging out at, at, at his place that night, and we we're like, "Let's watch the game. It's it's on TV, like a rerun of it." And while I was at his house, just hanging out after the game, we found out that actually I broke his arm. Oh (laughs) no. Because we played next to each other, the running back was coming up the middle and we converged to make the tackle. Mm -hmm. We thought it was the running back's fault, but like my helmet just destroyed his arm. And uh, so that was a very uncomfortable conversation, but uh, I did break his arm. I did not break yours. Uh, Well, I mean, we we now have uh, officially on the record that you did. Fair enough. Um, but no, it, it was playing basketball, uh, going up for a rebound. Someone hit me from behind, fell on my outstretched left arm. Uh, I can still jump pretty well, and I weigh quite a bit. So there was a lot of force going through my left arm. Uh, so that's what happened. A, a standard foosh injury, if you will. Uh, speaking of which, weighing quite a bit. Good segue. I'm ne- I'm now nesting a new segment within the good news segment because ideally there will only be good news every time this segment comes up, and that is my road to the stage segment. Um, I have decided, so I, I've been just kind of like vacillating between, hey, I want to cut some weight and hey, I want to get strong for like the last five years or so, uh, and I've decided... Fuck it, I'm going to put this out here publicly just as kind of a an accountability mechanism. Uh, I, I'm really uh, dedicating myself to this cut. Um, I'm about, uh, well, so I, I set myself three goals, well, four goals really to start with. Uh, I made it to my first goal, which was to get below 250 again. That was 
new as of this morning. Congratulations to me. Uh, I'm halfway to my second goal, which is to get below 235. That is a number of import to me because that is what I weighed at my wedding, uh, and I have not been below that since my wedding. Uh, we ate a lot on our honeymoon. It was great. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so halfway to that, and then I'm a third of the way to my first big goal, which is to get below 220 again. Uh, so that's what I weighed for the last meet I did at 220. Ate a lot after that meet. Have not been below 220 since. Um, and then I'm about a quarter of the way to where I think I'm probably going to wrap this up, which is to get down to around 205, give or take. Um Actually, you know, I'll, I'll probably push it to a shade below 200. Yeah, just, I was going to say, get below 200. Yeah, ju- just to just see to what see that looks it. like. I, I'm kind of hung up on doing things in like 15-pound increments because everything else has worked out to 15-pound increments so well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm interested to see what that'll look like because uh, the last time I was below 200, I got down to 190 uh, after my first semester of college, and that was at a time where I was... Uh, pretty much just like crash dieting and not lifting at all. And like, I was fairly lean and looked pretty good at 190 then. So, I mean, I'm planning on continuing to lift all the way down. So, I mean, hopefully, hopefully I look sick. Uh, and if I don't, that's fine. I probably won't. Honestly, I probably have a very weird physique, uh, cause I've pretty much only done squat binge deadlift for the last decade plus. Um, but you know what? That's fine. Uh, and there and there's only one way to find out. Absolutely. And, and so I guess this is where you reveal basically that our whole um, diet app that we're building is just a selfish project to keep you on track, basically. I mean, kind of, but not really. Uh, it, it has actually been really huge, though, because I think my I, I think one of my biggest psychological hangups with cutting before is I so my my weight fluctuates a lot like it, it can fluctuate up to like eight to ten pounds or more over the span of two or three days and I think I would just let that get in my head quite a bit um and you know if if it was trending up for like three or four days straight I'd be like oh no my deficit isn't big enough and then if I make a much larger deficit I think, oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm probably just losing a bunch of muscle. I think I'm going way too fast. Uh, and also, I just really hated logging my nutrition, mostly because the apps that were out there were very clunky and annoying for that. Like, I, I did not want to have to wrestle with my fitness pal for like five minutes every time I logged a meal to swipe through 30 different options to figure out the one where I thought the nutrition information was actually correct. Uh, so the app has been pretty huge because I can log stuff way quicker and I know the math behind it. So (laughs) I, I know that when the app is telling me to eat, uh, like 2,700 calories per day, I know that's correct because like, I know the formulas that go into it and it, it must be correct. Uh, if what we know about physics is true, uh, and thus far that, that has been working out. Um, yeah. And it's, it's been great. That's what I love about it is like, you know, that the number on there is exactly what you would have gotten if you sat down and spent like 30 minutes doing a bunch of calculations and estimates and stuff. Yeah. Because like, you know, we've been just 
killing ourselves over the details, making sure all the calculations are, are what we want. So no, it, it's been really exciting to have that, that access to just really easy tracking. And like you and I, I think are both, um, I think the technical term is stubborn bastards. Is, is that accurate? Sure. Yeah. So like, yeah, I, there are many ways to get an estimate, but I prefer our estimate <laughs> over anybody else's. But uh, but yeah, so um, we aren't going to hoard that forever. It will be coming out at some point in the future, and we're excited to share that, but not until it's 100% ready. Uh, so that brings me to some other Stronger by Science news. Uh, first of all, I forgot to mention the... Uh, the bulk supplements.com discount last episode and probably several other episodes, but rest assured, if you have any supplement needs, you go down to bulk supplements.com, you type in the code SBS pod in all caps, and that gets you a 5% discount on your, your supplement order. Yeah. After our last episode, we got a sh- very strongly worded uh, email from one of their enforcers, fat Tony, uh, and he said if we didn't mention it on this podcast that in addition to my broken wrist, they would break our kneecaps. Uh, so please, please use that code. We uh, we desperately need that. Correct. And we desperately need all of our kneecaps as well. Correct. Yeah. So um, on top of that, even more good news for Stronger by Science. We recently hired two new coaches, which is really awesome. So we hired Jacob Green, who is a registered dietitian. He's also working on his master's right now in Grant Tinsley's lab. And if you're listening and you've been a longtime listener, you know that we've had uh, Grant Tinsley on the show before. You know that we talk about his research every few weeks, it seems, because he does a lot of really cool body composition and, uh, you know, nutrition metabolism stuff. So he does a lot of time-restricted feeding, uh, resting metabolic rate, uh, predictive equations, body comp analysis, a lot of cool stuff out of Tinsley's lab. And we actually do like believe in the stuff we talk about. <laughs> so like, you know, w- when we're looking for people to hire, like if, if we know that you're working and studying under Grant, we're like, okay, I like that. You know, you know enough about this stuff to have found Grant. That's a good sign. Um, but yeah, so Jacob Green, he's a registered dietitian. Uh, we're really stoked to have him on board. And then we've also got PAC and you know PAC better than I do. Do you want to give a little uh, shout out to PAC there? Uh, yeah, so he's a he's a PhD student um, working under James Steele out in the UK. Uh, so Pack his his real name is Patroclus, uh, much like Achilles's sidekick in the Iliad, which is very cool. Uh, big Homer fans on the podcast, uh, but yeah, he he's great. Um, he does really cool research. He he recently finished up. Uh, data collection for his PhD, looking at the minimum effective dose of uh, resistance training for strength development in people with prior training experience. So uh, very cool, very practical stuff. Uh, Also just a very funny guy, Um, very good online footprint, I would say, uh, both on Twitter and Instagram. So uh, if you're interested in a coach, he's excellent, Uh, you know, but both, uh, both very scientifically astute and also a big meathead, which I think is the perfect combination that you're looking for, uh, and, and just a great guy all around. Yeah, we're really excited about hiring both these coaches, really talented folks. And, uh, you know, we don't make coaching hires that often, 
so right now we do have some open spots on our rosters uh, with, within the Stronger by Science coaching team. Uh, so if you've been thinking about applying for coaching with one of our coaches, now would be the time to apply because those rosters are probably going to fill up pretty quickly. Uh, and then, you know, you might get waitlisted if you apply after that point. So uh, now would be a great time to uh, apply for coaching. We do one-time consultations, month-to-month coaching. We do annual uh, coaching programs. And uh, yeah, you can do training only, nutrition only, or a combination of both. Uh, Okay, so how about some feats of strength from Greg? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So I've got two this time around. Well, two and a half, you'll see. Um, So one of them was Joy Namani. Um, She is a a 57 kilo uh, USAPL IPF uh, competitive lifter. Uh, 57 kilos, that's the 125 pound weight class. Uh, she currently holds the world record deadlift in that weight class at 213 and a half kilos or 471 pounds. She recently posted a gym lift of her pulling 227 and a half kilos or 501 pounds in training. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of training lifts, especially on the deadlift, people might use a deadlift bar if they compete with a stiff bar or they might use straps. Uh, she pulled this on what appeared to be a power bar and without straps. So, you know, under the same sort of conditions that one would in competition. So she she looks to be good for it on the platform. Um that would extend her own record to nearly 50 pounds ahead of the number two uh, lifter in that weight class. And it's also only 12 and a half kilos off of Steffi Cohen's untested record in that weight class, which, uh, I mean, we're, we're big fans of Steffi on the pod, obviously an excellent deadlifter. Um, so for, for joy to be an un or t- for joy to be a tested lifter closing in on those levels of deadlift strength. And honestly, just to pull over 500 pounds at 125, uh, absolutely wild. Uh, hope she hits it in her next meet. Very, very, very strong. Uh, and number two, uh, and also number two and a half, uh, Gerald uh, Dionio uh, totaled 740 kilos or 1,631 pounds in the 148 pound weight class or the 67 and a half kilo class. Uh, that is a new uh, raw with wraps untested world record in that weight class uh, that beats out Michael Estrella by two kilograms. Very, very strong. That's, um, <laughs> I, I want to say that's around where the record at 181 was when I started competing. So <laughs> the fact that people are doing that at 148 now, uh, absolutely wild. Uh, but when I was, when I was looking those numbers up on open powerlifting, one of the things that jumped out to me on the page was that Tony Conyers still has the number four total all time in that class. Uh, he was the former all time world record holder at 148. Uh, and he hit his total of, uh, 1585 or 719 kilos at the ripe young age of 58 years old. Uh, so I was just curious when I saw that, like, how much stronger is Tony Conyers or was Tony Conyers than other people of approximately his age when he hit that total? Uh, and it's absolutely insane. So he totaled 1585. The next closest total in that weight class uh, was 1185. So he, he was like 400 pounds and uh, 
like 33% ahead of second place in that weight class. Uh, and also just in terms of individual lifts for people in his weight class at his age, uh, squats 150 pounds more than anyone else, benches 40 pounds more than anyone else, and deadlifts almost 100 pounds more than anyone else. So um, ju- just a, tr- a true freak performance um, from someone at 58 years old. W- probably if you account for both weight class and also age, that might be the biggest outlier performance in powerlifting history. If not, it's it's relatively close to it. Awesome. That's really, really impressive. Uh, strong people doing strong things. I, It always blows me away when you look at like the records from, you know, when I was really following powerlifting closely, it was like 2012. Mm-hmm. And you look at the records now and compare them to back then. And it's just like, you just have to like shift everything to weight classes. You oh, know? yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> what... What used to be good in one weight class uh, now is good two weight classes below that, which is just, it's really mind-blowing. All right, so let's move forward and talk about some science here. Uh, I know I've got a research roundup, and I know you've got uh, some research to cover as well, so let's dive right into it. My research roundup is about beta-alanine and related compounds. Uh, So it's really interesting. the beta alanine literature is there have been a few papers lately that have been pretty eye-opening when it comes to beta alanine. And that I feel like that's kind of unexpected for a lot of people because you, you think of beta alanine as something that's been around for a while, or at least been in the general consciousness of lifters for a while. So you would think that we have all the basic stuff totally hammered out by now. Uh, but that's really not necessarily the case. We still have the literature is still young enough for beta alanine that we can still have these papers come out that kind of really uh, reframe the way we look at it, the way we think about it. It could have some practical significance. Um, Now, I do want to put a little caveat at the beginning here. Some of this information is a bit speculative. Um, I mean, that, that is inherently the risk you run when you talk about newer research that's kind of on the cutting edge is that, you know, it, it hasn't been tested in like 35 different randomized controlled trials. So there's a little bit of speculation here, but some interesting new uh, findings that I want to briefly discuss about beta alanine. So the reason we take beta alanine is because you can combine beta alanine and histidine and create carnosine, and you can store that in your muscles. Um, And so in humans, we store carnosine in our muscles. It does a lot of different things, but when we think about it for performance uh, reasons, the most important stuff is it can facilitate pH buffering. It can help us uh, buffer some of those protons that accumulate during high-intensity glycolytic exercise. That can help sustain high-intensity performance, especially if we're talking about any kind of sprint work or like glycolytic short rest period work that's happening over the span of a couple minutes to maybe 10 minutes or so. Um, And so in humans, we've got carnosine that we store in muscle to take care of that. But there are other histidine-containing dipeptides. Uh, So carnosine uh, fits in there. But there's also anserine, and there's uh, something called ophidine. 
and, and these are um, basically like methylated analogs of carnosine. And different mammals have different combinations uh, of these uh, histidine-containing dipeptides. Uh, and, and it's really cool when you look uh, at, at some of the comparative physiology and you look at how different animals have these different uh, amounts of histidine-containing dipeptides in their muscles. Like, uh, you, you look at, I think there's some pretty incredibly high levels in, like, mammals that live in the ocean that have to do really extended dives underwater because, I mean, they're mammals, right? I mean, it's not like they can just... Uh, bring in some oxygen through their gills or anything but you know they have to be able to stay underwater for a while and do a lot of anaerobic metabolism without coming up for another breath and so they're they they have some i mean they have a million interesting aspects to their physiology but one of the things is they tend to have really high levels of these histidine containing compounds to facilitate all of the buffering necessary for that uh, prolonged period of anaerobic metabolism. So uh, I think I think horses as well have some pretty impressive levels in their muscles, which is uh, one of the reasons that they can go and go and go at, at high intensities. So in humans, uh, we only store carnosine in our muscles, but uh, you know these other histidine-containing dipeptides are becoming fairly interesting uh, when we look at the research. People have started investigating um, the feasibility of supplementing uh, with, uh, so, you know, typically we think of supplementing with beta alanine, which is great. It combines with histidine. We store it in our muscles for more of a long-term chronic supplementation uh, strategy. But in the short term, people are looking at what would happen if we supplement with a combination of carnosine and anserine, which is one of those uh, methylated analogs of carnosine. And so the reason that you might do that, um, there are some logistical challenges when it comes to carnosine supplementation. Because some people are like, hey, let's just supplement with carnosine, and that way acutely we'll have plenty of carnosine in the blood. It'll be doing what we're trying to do with beta-alanine supplementation anyway. Well, there's an issue there, and, and that is the fact that carnosine itself uh, is broken down by a very active enzyme in the blood called human serum carnosinase 1. And so what happens is, you know, you might want to do acute supplementation with, uh, with, with carnosine itself, but it's going to be very rapidly broken down in the bloodstream into beta alanine and histidine. And so then the beta alanine is going to go to the muscle and, and all that other stuff. So the, the idea of doing acute supplementation with carnosine alone uh, doesn't seem to work out and does come with the challenges that we associate with high dose beta alanine. So if you take a bunch of it, more likely to have a headache, more likely to have all that tingling that we call paresthesia. But what's really interesting is that people have been looking into uh, a, a different approach and what they're doing is uh, giving a combination of carnosine and anserine. And so this kind of gets around some of the issues associated with just doing high-dose carnosine supplementation. Uh, so basically what happens is the anserine itself is uh, way less susceptible to that breakdown from that enzyme in the blood. And so the idea is you give a high dose of carnosine, which saturates that carnosinase enzyme, you combine it with 
a pretty high dose of anserine, which is more resistant to that enzyme. And you might be able to actually induce some acute effects uh, that might not be possible with just doing carnosine alone or just doing beta alanine alone. Um, and what's really fascinating is that for some reason, the side effects you would associate with high dose carnosine, they don't seem to be quite as bad if you give kind of an equal mixture of carnosine and anserine, uh, which is really, really fascinating. And like I said, we're, we're teetering onto the cutting edge here. So it's very possible a wave of like six new studies will come in and say, no, that was just a fluke. The side effects are equivalent. But for now, they, they have shown that like instead of giving a 60 milligram per kilogram dose of carnosine, you can give 30 and 30 carnosine and anserine. And it has a much better profile in terms of the paresthesia and the headache susceptibility. So anyway, there, there have been a couple studies that have come out that have kind of caught my attention where they've applied this strategy uh, and, and they've been able to induce, uh, obviously, acute increases in serum levels of carnosine and anserine, but also, like I said, a really nice profile in terms of side effects and adverse effects, uh, just the general discomfort we see with high-dose carnosine supplementation. Uh, and, and there have been some preliminary studies showing some, some fairly positive effects when it comes to, uh, you know, short-term glycolytic exercise performance. So, this stuff is very much in its infancy, but if you're if you're interested in beta alanine and you kind of like nerding out on the physiology behind it, I, I think it's a really fascinating thing to look at here. We'll see if it turns out to be a, a really promising strategy in terms of you know improving various types of performance. But you know the the mechanisms involved here when we talk about you know carnosine's effects in muscle. Uh, of course, we're talking about buffering pH and also potentially increasing uh, calcium sensitivity of myofibrils, potentially facilitating muscle force output. But the idea is you could basically do long-term supplementation, more chronic supplementation with beta alanine, build up your muscular storage of carnosine, but then before exercise bouts, supplement with this combination of carnosine and anserine and that would increase blood levels of these histidine-containing dipeptides, which could further facilitate some of that buffering that's going on during high-intensity exercise. So th that's a new strategy. And like I said, it, it caught my eye because it's a little bit novel. Um, you know, you, you look at things, they, they've even, uh, I've seen some studies that look at supplementing with chicken meat extracts. Uh, and so you, you'd look at that if it was in the title of a study and be like, okay, that's weird. Going to scroll right past it. But when you look at chicken meat extracts, they typically do have uh, high concentrations of these compounds, and they usually have a ratio of carnosine to anserine of like one to two or one to three. Uh, so this particular research group, I'm, I'm going to put some links in the show notes if you want to dig a little bit deeper into this body of research. But uh, this particular group has a a really keen interest in these chicken meat extracts because they do provide uh, the multiple histidine containing dipeptides within uh, a kind of naturally occurring food matrix, which is pretty fascinating. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I've got a question that I'm sure other people will ask. Sure. Uh, so it, it's the classic like creatine and beef question like, oh, can I just eat enough beef that I don't have to supplement with creatine? Uh, since this stuff is in chicken meat, do you know if like cooking chicken meat breaks it down or? If one were to consume basically all of their protein from chicken, 
would their bases be covered? Mm, I'd, I'd have. It's been a long time since I looked into the actual like raw value concentrations within meats. I, I definitely can't answer that on the fly. But uh, just just to give uh, an idea of the dosing we're talking about, it looks like this research group is really fond of the dosing protocol using uh, 30 milligrams per kilogram of each. Uh, and so like if you weigh 80 kilograms, that would be uh, 2.4 grams of each. So it'd be 4.8 grams of the, of the total if you go 30 and 30. So what, what's really fascinating to me with this, uh, this particular line of inquiry is that, uh, you know, like I said, giving 60 milligrams per kilogram of pure carnosine, if you're 80 kilograms, that'd be like 4.8 grams. And that, that induces headache and paresthesia in like 40% of subjects that that's not fun. Uh, but if you go 30 and 30 with these two different compounds combined, we're talking about 2.4 grams of each. Uh, and, and that seems to be doing a pretty good job of alleviating or circumventing those adverse symptoms. So I, I would struggle to believe that you could get that from chicken meat itself. Um, I wonder if maybe there's a type of broth out there that might be able to do it, but I, I'm really not certain. I'd have to double check on that. But, uh, but it, it's a fascinating look at uh, a fairly novel uh, perspective with regards to these beta-alanine-related uh, compounds and, and potential supplementation strategies. And again, it's important to really delineate the distinction here. So when we talk about beta-alanine, we're trying to build up long-term muscle storage of carnosine. And the advantage of these uh, combined supplementation with these alternative histidine-containing compounds is they're trying to target acute supplementation given you know directly before an exercise bout because beta-alanine itself, uh, we do not expect it to have much of an acute effect uh, whatsoever. Um, I see you're Googling furiously over there. Anything to report? Yeah, I, I think it might be possible, actually. Really? Um, but again, I don't know how heat affects this. Yeah. So the molar mass of carnosine is 226.3 grams per mole. Uh, I see another one of these figures in your paper or in your outline uh, looking at muscle carnosine concentrations in humans. Um, so without beta alanine supplementation, about 20 millimoles per kilogram. Uh, so if we assume that that is similar for chickens, uh, so 20 millimoles divided by a thousand to get millimoles, you'd wind up with like, uh, 4.5 grams of carnosine per kilogram. I don't know. That would be for human flesh. Uh, I don't know what those levels would look like for chickens. And yeah, again, don't, I, don't eat don't eat human flesh. I, by the way. I mean, but if you did want four and a half grams of carnosine from human flesh, a kilogram raw might get you there. Uh, again, not recommending it. Wink, wink. Um, but anyway, if those levels happen to be similar in chickens, and if heat doesn't affect it, a kilogram of chicken meat would would get you close. But I, I suspect it probably breaks down due to heat. I, 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 I think, think most so. things do. I, I, th I think heat would be an issue. And I, I would also be cautious about um, the actual meat content of chicken just because the species-to-species -species variation is very substantial. Um, 
and different species have different relative amounts of these different histidine containing dipeptides. So uh, we can look into it and see if we can find a way there with food for sure. But we're, we're not. So to be clear, we're not recommending you eat a kilogram of chicken sashimi per day, but <laughs> we're not recommending you don't do that either. I'm recommending that you don't, but okay. I, I don't want to speak for you. Um, so, so that's the one side is this new research that's coming out, very preliminary, but very interesting, looking at other histidine containing compounds. Um, but beta alanine itself, I, I don't remember exactly how much of this I've discussed on the podcast, but it's a good time to revisit it because there's more information about beta alanine dosing and washout that's become available. Um, so like I said, beta alanine, we're trying to increase muscle storage of carnosine so we can use it later when we need it. Um, I was at a conference several years ago and I, I bumped into Roger Harris and I, th I think you and I were buddies at the time. We didn't like work together or anything like that. But I, I think this was around that time frame where I was like, dude, you're never going to believe this. But so Roger Harris is standing at this poster, which is pretty atypical. You don't see a lot of like really like senior level researchers presenting posters at a lot of conferences, maybe at like the really fancy prestigious ones. But um, usually a lot of students present preliminary findings with, with posters. So like, Roger Harris, if you're not familiar with him, he's like the the big dog in creatine research and the big dog in beta alanine research. So very, very prolific, uh, very impactful career. I, I would, if I had to, if you had a Mount Rushmore of sport nutrition researchers, I don't see how you could possibly leave Roger off of it. Like he really pioneered the work on both creatine and beta alanine, which just so happens to be the two things that like kind of work sometimes, which is pretty wild. But anyway, I bump into him uh, and he's presenting these findings where they were kind of mathematically modeling uh, what muscle carnosine saturation ought to look like. You know, if, if what we know about beta alanine and carnosine is true, they were like, here's the math ma mathematical model. And their basic premise was like, we're we're probably underdosing beta alanine uh, in virtually all studies. Uh, basically, they were they were saying if you could get around some of the annoying side effects to allow higher daily doses, we could probably saturate human muscle with far more carnosine than we're seeing in a lot of the beta alanine research. And you know the the pathway to doing that is longer studies and higher daily doses, but doses are usually constrained just because it becomes so unpleasant to go with really high doses uh, of beta alanine. So fast forward to like last year, I think there was a meta-analysis by it's, it looks like it's Resendi and colleagues, but I'm pretty sure it's a, a Brazilian group and R's are H's sometimes in, in Portuguese. So Hezendi maybe, but uh, anyway, they, they uh, did a meta-analysis looking at muscle carnosine responses to various beta-alanine doses, uh, and they did some really, really fascinating modeling with their data, and they kind of came to the same conclusion from a more empirical direction, and they're like, yeah, um, we can probably get muscle carnosine levels much higher than we've seen in previous research. It's just going to be a matter of 
getting over some of the logistical barriers. So that's an area that I'm excited to see develop moving forward. Um, it is plausible to suggest that we might be underestimating the utility of beta alanine uh, and underestimating the effect size because we're not really increasing muscle carnosine to the extent that is possible. So if people can continue to develop ways to deliver beta alanine with uh, circumventing the paresthesia and some of the side effects of high doses, I'm thinking of, you know, the obvious, uh, one of the obvious uh, routes to do that would be with some of the sustained release formulas that, that people are working on. Um, but if people can find any other creative way to deliver beta alanine at higher doses without some of those side effects, uh, and the big ones, like I said, are headache and, and just that tingling. Um, I, I'm curious to see if the effect sizes we observe uh, go up because, you know, what we find in studies is that the, uh, the magnitude of improvements does tend to be related to the magnitude of increase in muscle carnosine, which is very, very intuitive. So there, there's some interesting speculation uh, based on good evidence coming on the dosing side or the, the loading side with muscle carnosine levels. But there's also new research on the washout side of things. So if you cease supplementation, you know, how long does it take for muscle carnosine levels to drop back down to baseline? Can I just slide another quick question in here? Sure. Do you know if beta alanine is like creatine where it will spontaneously break down in water? Um, you know, the thing that's tricky about that is there's just this wonderful paper that just tackled everything you'd want to know about creatine's properties and like how long it breaks down in water and how that changes when the pH changes and the mm -hmm. temperature changes. I don't know of such a paper for beta alanine. So I'm not certain what its stability looks like in water. Uh, obviously it's a very stable uh, in powdered form, but I'm not sure about liquid form. Yeah, I, so I, I was just wondering because, you know, it, it seems like they're trying a bunch of big brain solutions. Like, hey, we're going to mix it with anserine. We're going to work on an extended release formula. Uh, my my very room temperature IQ type idea was, why not just mix it in a lot of water and just sip on it throughout the day? So you're never getting like th that large of a dose at any one time. Well, would you even believe that that's what I did when I first read this meta-analysis? Oh, shit. Um, and I'm here to tell the tale. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what my muscle carnosine levels were like. Um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was my kind of intuitive genius mode solution was like, oh, what if I just sipped on a lot of it throughout the day? Uh, and so, yeah, it could be that by the end of the day, I was just sipping pure toxins, just absolute... <laughs> <laughs> uh, caustic breakdown products. Who knows? But uh, I'll, I'll look into that. We'll we'll have to circle back next episode and do some more digging on on some of these beta alanine ideas. Uh, and maybe the listeners will have some questions to add to the list as yeah, well. Yeah, because I mean that, that's the first place my brain goes. Uh, obviously, that would be difficult to study because you don't you don't trust human subjects with that much, anyways. Uh, if you ran a study where you're where you were just like, <laughs> hey, here's some powder you put in water, uh, just mix it in like a gallon of water and just drink on it throughout the day. And we're just going to have to trust that you drank it all and we'll accurately report whether you did or not. I don't know. that, and, and drink it at the right increments as well. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would not 
even if that study got published, I wouldn't put that much stock in it. After, I wouldn't believe them after yeah. working with human research subjects. Um, so yeah, that that would be tough to study. But I mean, it it might be a practical thing in the real world if someone is, you know, kind of obsessive about supplement timing protocols. Yeah, I, I can't recommend that until we figure out about the stability question. But but yeah, it certainly was the first thing that came to mind for me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, every now and then, I'll, you know, I, I try to be really mindful of, you know, when people volunteer for research, uh, it's such a kind thing to do. I mean, they're making a huge sacrifice uh, to benefit others, you know, so I, 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 I hate when people are like the Creed song. <laughs> exactly. I don't know which Creed song. My sacrifice. Yes I, yes. I think that was about participating in research. It probably was. Uh, and by the way, if you're a huge Creed head like Greg is, there are videos of their 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 halftime performance at um a thanksgiving day football game in 2001 at at a cowboys game at a cowboys game yeah Yeah, on thanksgiving day and it is one of the worst things you could even imagine and i i actually i showed it to you greg and then you showed it to your wife i lost my fucking mind Lindsay was actually like upset she was physically revulsed by it. Yeah, so I'm I might have to dig up the link and put it in the show notes. Oh man, it was so bad. But uh, anyway, what was? Oh yeah, so research uh, research participants. You know, you never want to like be too hard on them because what they're doing is ultimately doing everybody out there a huge favor. Um, but yeah, every now and then I'll look at those papers where it's like, yeah, the intervention was to take two capsules, two flavorless capsules a day. And you, you see the adherence rate was like 88%. And you're like, what? Or like the, the compliance. And it's like, yeah, if you can't get people to take two capsules a day, yeah, sipping on a, a, a huge beverage perfectly throughout the day, probably not going to happen. I mean, that's like talking to um, uh, physical therapists. Because uh, if you have an injury, they'll often have you go into physical therapy a few times a week to do some exercises there. And you might be thinking like, hey, why do I have to do this? Why can't I just do these exercises at home? Talking to physical therapists, their basic reason for that is like, because no one ever does the exercises at home. And it's like, oh, yeah, just just kick your knee a few times a day if you want to be able to walk normally again for the rest of your life. And people don't do that. So I just don't trust subjects to take supplements that well on their own. Yeah. So, um. We'll definitely look into that stability question with beta alanine, but um, I did want to mention a lot of times people ask me with people who are supplementing with beta alanine ask me about, you know, I'm, I stopped taking it for a week or two. What, what should I do about that? How much have, have I missed out on? Uh, you know, how much could my muscle carnosine levels really drop over a week or two of missed doses? So th- I think this was a really helpful paper. Uh, for answering that question, but also, you know, if you're looking at a crossover trial and, you know, they had people do beta alanine supplementation and then then they have a washout period and then they do the placebo intervention, you need to, when you're evaluating that research, you need to make sure that the washout period is sufficient for muscle carnosine levels to get back down to baseline. And so this study, uh, and I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously, looked at, um, you know, they, they gave 6.4 grams a day of beta alanine, a pretty typical dose uh, over an eight-week period, so pretty standard. And then they just watched muscle carnosine levels fall over time. 
And the with this particular dosing protocol, it did follow a relatively linear pattern uh, in terms of the, the drop over time. Uh, you know, it, it kind of flattened out a little bit toward the end, but fairly linear, linear in general. And, and so they saw drops occurring over about a 16-week period. And by, by the time they got to week 16, I think you could roughly say that muscle carnosine levels were pretty much back to baseline. They, they were still elevated the slightest bit, but they were pretty close by week, week 16. But that, that's pretty much my answer for folks, is you can expect a reasonably linear drop for about 16 weeks. And by week 16, you're pretty much back to baseline, uh, roughly. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on right now in the beta alanine world and the related histidine containing dipeptides. Uh, so I just want to wrap this up with some conclusions and, you know, the, the practical stuff is a ways off um, just because this is kind of on the forefront of the literature, but uh, definitely keep these dosing and washout considerations in mind when you're looking at research. Uh, you know, 6.4 grams a day for an 8 to 12 week period is the most common thing you're going to see in research. If they're going below 6.4 it's possible that they're they're really underselling the potential utility of beta alanine and not really increasing muscle carnosine levels as much as you'd like to see. And now we're learning that even the 6.4, uh, you know, could potentially be improved upon. Um, so it is possible that beta alanine's effect sizes are a little bit larger than we currently see in the literature. But of course, one thing to keep in mind is that it's going to be task specific. So beta alanine, if you're doing sprints that last six minutes, absolutely. <laughs> like it's kind of a no brainer. If you're doing sprints that last two or three minutes, absolutely. A lot of times people who lift are like, well, why would I use beta alanine? If you're doing high load, low repetition uh, efforts with plenty of rest between sets, probably not getting much of a benefit uh, unless we see that with these really high doses, there's something there. But I, I wouldn't hold my breath about that. I'd say that the people who stand to gain the most in terms of lifters from something like beta alanine, if you're a CrossFitter, if you do strongman competitions, um, if you do really high rep stuff uh, with short rest periods, but, which I actually do sometimes. You know, Sometimes if I'm crunch for time and I just want to get in for 45 minutes and get a great hypertrophy stimulus, I do some sets of you know 12 to 20 and I have kind of shorter rest periods, maybe some supersetting, things like that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that you know there might be some benefit there. A little bit speculative, but the, the general point is that you know the, the, the degree to which you're stressing some of the uh, glycolytic energy system uh, and the lactate tolerance, you know, those types of uh, aspects of physiology, the degree to which you're stressing those things is probably going to, you know, give you an idea of how much you could expect to really gain from beta alanine supplementation. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is that we're talking about these other histidine containing dipeptides for acute supplementation, uh, trying to increase blood levels of them. I think a very fair question would be, why would I do that instead of doing something like sodium bicarbonate supplementation, which you know very effectively facilitates buffering uh, and elevates blood levels uh, of bicarbonate? Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. I think if I had to pick one or the other based on the evidence available, 
I, I'd, I'd probably go with sodium bicarb uh, over a mixture of carnosine and anserine. But, you know, I'm sure we're going to see some some research in the next couple of years that puts that to the test and says, uh, you know, group A elevated sodium bicarbonate levels in the blood, group B elevated, you know, these histidine containing dipeptides and, and, and look at some of those acute effects. I would expect that sodium bicarbonate is probably the more efficacious route, but uh, I still think it's good to keep an eye on this emerging research and see how it develops. Also, why not both? Of course. I mean, I, I put in the timeline. I've, I've got it time stamped and everything. I say, maybe use, use them in combination. You know, if you're doing the type of exercise that, that really benefits from facilitating those buffering systems, I, I, I do think that there's probably some potential for, uh, you know, just kind of the, you know, broad spectrum approach of saying, I'm going to take beta alanine chronically and then acutely go with a combination of these other histidine containing compounds and sodium bicarbonate. Uh, and with sodium bicarbonate, several, like a million episodes ago, I talked about a unique strategy for kind of titrating the dose and doing small doses and kind of a, a pattern building up so that you don't have to take a huge dose at once and run the risk of having some extremely unpleasant, uh, GI symptoms. So, uh, I, I want to, you know, everyone's coming out with these ridiculous supplement blends every two weeks. I think this is something that like, if you were thinking what's an area where we could actually could use a blend rather than a single ingredient approach. And this is, listen, folks, this is free advice. I'm not even charging for this. Someone's out there with a supplement company, dude, I mean, you know, a sensible dose of sodium bicarbonate with, uh, you know, some carnosine, some anserine, that might not be a bad kind of, you know, pre-exercise buffering thing for people doing, you know, really glycolytic activity. You should hit up bulk supplements. I don't think they do uh, blended products like that. Do, do they not do any at all? They might. I don't know. I mean, we've made them billions of dollars at this point. We, we could potentially get a, a Eric Trexler formulated bulk supplements buffer blend. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, be, we'll look into they it. They do citrulline malate. That is literally a mixture of citrulline <laughs> and malate. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I think there are some really interesting possibilities uh, looking at this research moving forward. So we'll see if any of it pans out. But uh, really interesting stuff coming out here. And uh, of course, another practical takeaway is, you know, if you miss a few doses of beta alanine, don't sweat it. Um, it's, you know, it's not going to just tank from missing a couple days of supplementation. It takes, you know, a couple weeks to even see an appreciable drop that, that would even really register. Um, and in, in terms of total washout, we're talking about a 16 week period, which is a long time. So I think that does it for, uh, that, that was a long winded look at some new interesting stuff on beta alanine. I, I've got another question okay. actually. Um, so th this could be uh, you. You might be uh, refusing to answer this question via rejecting the premise. Just throwing that out there to start with. I read somewhere, and I don't remember where, uh, that there were potentially issues with long-term beta alanine supplementation because it can have a competitive inhibitory effect on taurine because they use the same receptor. Yeah. Um, and that people were concerned that supplementing with beta alanine could decrease taurine levels in the brain and testes, which could 
be bad for for brain health and testicular health and function long term. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there there was uh, a study within the last couple of years that that specifically looked at that. So they they gave a pretty generous dose of beta alanine, um, and they looked at muscle levels of of taurine and carnosine and things like that. And uh, you know, I don't have the exact numbers uh, off the top of my head. But it largely alleviated those concerns. Um, now, big caveat, it was only within the kind of typical framework of beta alanine dosing. So if they do find ways to deliver way higher doses, uh, then that seems like a nice thing for muscle carnosine levels. But then they'll probably have to revisit that and make sure that they don't cross some kind of dosing threshold where that taurine issue becomes more uh, a more pressing issue. Uh, just to rule it out, you know, but, but so far within the typical dosing approach, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Second caveat, like I said, they looked at muscle touring levels because people don't seem to be really excited about giving uh, biopsies from their brain or their testes. So I'm assuming that the same is true uh, for those tissues, but uh, I'd have to look into a lot more uh, testy physiology to ensure that we can extrapolate that from muscle to, to those other tissues. But uh, I know a lot of people have been worried about muscle taurine levels with beta alanine, and th- those concerns have been largely alleviated within the dosing strategies that we see commonly applied. Cool. All right. You want to talk about some of your research? Uh, Not that you did it, but you found it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, research roundup time? Yes. Cool. So I, I've got, I, I didn't count maybe a half dozen papers, give or take, and uh, just going to run down them real quick. Uh, So the first one I want to talk about is by Moquin and colleagues. Uh, Title is Lean Body Mass and Muscle Cross-Sectional Area Adaptations Among College-Age Males with Different Strength Levels Across 11 Weeks of Block Periodized Program (laughs) Resistance Training. Oh, that's a mouthful. Um... But yeah, anyway, so I, I wanted to talk about this study very briefly because an idea or a, a question that I get pretty frequently is um, basically to what degree does hypertrophy and strength blocks feed into each other? So one of the things that uh, I, I'll admit the evidence, like the direct experimental evidence for isn't super strong, but one of the things that I do believe to be true is that uh, muscle hypertrophy increases your potential for strength gains. And so, you know, if you're if you're hitting a pretty hard wall, uh, you're plateaued really hard, uh, might not be a terrible idea to do a, a fairly prolonged period of hypertrophy training so you can build some more muscle, which can then increase your propensity for strength gains. One of the questions that, that I frequently field is basically, does that work in reverse? If you've hit a muscle plateau, can increasing your strength levels, um, you know, in theoretically here, we're, we're primarily talking about things like neural adaptations, basically getting more contractile force out of your current amount of muscle mass. Uh, can that then help you break through that muscle plateau to allow for greater hypertrophy? Um And I don't think that exists. I I don't think there's particularly great evidence for it. Um, And I'm not aware of a particularly sound theoretical rationale for it. Uh, And this paper by Moquin, I think, indirectly speaks to this a little bit. Um, So 
they they took uh, groups of people who had some prior training experience. The exact amount of training experience for each group uh, isn't reported, unfortunately. Unfortunately, uh, but they split them into three groups based on their uh, squatting ability um, in terms of squat one RM uh, per unit of body mass. So the people classified as low strength squatters squatted less than 1.25 times body mass. Uh, the people classified as medium strength squatters squatted between 1.25 and 1.75 times body mass. And the people classified as high strength squatters uh, squatted more than 1.7 times body mass. Uh, they did 11 weeks of training and they looked to see uh, changes in both lean body mass and also vastus lateralis cross-sectional area pre to post-training. I'm not going to talk about the low strength squatters. Uh, one, because I, I suspect they just had considerably lower training status. Uh, and two, because they had uh, a pretty fair bit less lean mass than than the moderate and high strength squatters did. Um, but I, I did think the comparison between the moderate and high strength squatters was pretty interesting. So the moderate strength squatters were uh, at least a bit bigger than the high strength squatters. So they had more lean body mass uh, and a non-significantly greater vastus lateralis cross-sectional area at baseline. So basically, they they had more muscle, but they were weaker. And so theoretically, if having more muscle or if having more strength per unit of muscle potentiates future hypertrophy, one would have expected quite a bit larger or quite a bit more hypertrophy in the high strength squatters in this study. Uh, and that's not what they found. Uh, all three groups experienced pretty similar increases in uh, vastus lateralis cross-sectional area, um, pretty similar increases in lean body mass. They also had a metric that was lean body mass corrected for total body water, uh, and those increases did not significantly differ between groups either. And if anything, there was maybe a slight trend for that corrected lean body mass metric to increase a little bit more in the moderate strength squatters and the high than the high strength squatters, which would run counter to the theory of being stronger per unit of muscle mass, potentiating future hypertrophy. Uh, to be clear, this this isn't like a slam dunk case against that idea that building strength will uh, help with muscle. One, because sample size was, was low. Uh, two, uh, not to be too nitpicky here, I'm not crazy about the statistical approach the authors used. Um, they had 15 total subjects, and they split them into three groups and ran a five by three ANOVA, so three groups, five time points. Uh, they should have just used regression. Uh, that would have preserved a lot more statistical power. So if they were going to have any significant findings, that would have made it quite a bit easier to, to find those things. Well, and it's not even just the statistical power thing, but it's just a it would be a statistical test that is more consistent with the question being asked. Oh, for sure. You know, for sure. And that, that's the thing that, that gets me is you get a lot of this where people ought to have used correlation or regression and they say, well, I usually use ANOVA in my studies, so let's go ahead and group this up. You also see several hundred million examples of people who should have used something like logistic regression in our field, and, and they just don't. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to get in a whole rant about it, but yeah, I, I agree with you. 
Yeah, that's that's all I was going to say about it. And the the third caveat here um, is that we don't know what the training backgrounds looked like for these people. So, you know, it, it could be that there were considerable differences in training status between the moderate strength squatters and the high strength squatters here. Uh, and maybe the higher the moderate strength squatters were just like genetically predisposed to hypertrophy more, but maybe had trained a little bit less. And so that's how they wound up uh, with lower squat strength, but greater lean body mass. So, you know, uh, you don't want to over extrapolate from uh, a study with a small sample size. But I, I do think this uh, is indirect evidence against that idea that building strength and achieving greater strength per unit of muscle mass will help you break through hypertrophy plateaus. I, I think the strength to size relationship works in the direction of building more size can help you build more strength. I don't think building more strength necessarily helps you, therefore, in the future, build more muscle. Uh, did you have something else to say? No, uh, kind of. I was going to say I, I agree uh, with your assessment of the evidence, um, but but you know, one thing to keep in mind is... Uh, from a practical perspective, yeah. If you do coach people, you, you you train people, and their goals are mostly hypertrophy focused. Um, when they it, it, there is some value to enjoying the process of strength gains and seeing the weight on the bar go up over time, just from the subjective experience of the fitness journey. So, mm -hmm. I, I think even if you've got a client who's maybe ninety. 90% focused on hypertrophy and just 10% gets a kick out of getting stronger. You know, it's not like these results indicate you can't do more strength focused blocks. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's still nice to throw them in there for some variety to keep things fresh to, to, like I said, to enjoy the process of seeing the weight on the bar go up. It's, you know, but, but well, and I, and I also think that as a result of effective hypertrophy training, now you have more contractile tissue. The yeah. loads on the bar should naturally increase from there. Yeah, I, I just would hate to see someone who is a trainer or a coach who hears those findings and goes, all right, no one's going under eight, you know, eight reps per set like yeah, yeah. ever again. So no, I, I'm talking about it more from kind of like a, like a I'm plateaued and I need to troubleshoot this type perspective. Like yeah. if you know, if you've been doing hypertrophy training and you haven't really been gaining much muscle and you're like, okay, I need to try something else to get things moving again. Um, I feel like I might be a little bit weak per the amount of muscle that I have on my frame. Uh, so what should I do? Should I try some other generally effective approach to hypertrophy training or should I do, you know, a 12 week block of heavy doubles to really try yeah. to increase my squat bench deadlift max and that'll help me build more muscle all, all i'm saying is like if that's kind of the the thought process you're going through you probably want to go with some other general approach to hypertrophy training yeah and if nothing else else works just throw some chains on the bar and it'll be fun hell yeah yeah all right uh moving on this this next one is it's going to be, I guess, more of a shout out to a paper than talking about it in depth, mostly because this is a, a pretty like biomechanics focused paper, which doesn't lend itself that well to an audio medium. Uh, but Stian Larson, who uh, connected with on social media, seems like a great guy, um, currently a PhD student, I believe. Uh, he's been doing some really, really cool 
uh, work looking at the sticking points in both the squat and the bench press. I think I recently have reviewed like three of his studies in the last six months in mass. Um, this one I'm not going to be reviewing in mass, I don't think, but it, it was a really cool study. The title is New Insights About the Sticking Region in Back Squats, an Analysis of Kinematics, Kinetics, and Myoelectric Activity Around the Sticking Region. And the biggest reason I wanted to talk about this paper and just kind of shout it out is this is the first paper I've seen that looks at the sticking point or the sticking region in an exercise that includes the right metrics to look at, you know, why do people start decelerating and, and struggle to get through the sticking region? So uh, the uh, the way a lot of these papers are set up is basically they'll look at um, kinetics, kinematics, and sometimes EMG at four different time points in a lift. So they'll look at it at the start of the concentric phase, at the point of first peak velocity so you know in a squat you squat down you start coming back up the bar starts moving it accelerates in the upward direction and then it slows down uh, and then you hit a point of minimum concentric velocity there near the end of your sticking region and then once you break through that uh, you know you're, you're going to be able to stand up with it as long as you don't lose your balance so at some point you hit a point of second uh, peak velocity and then the bar has to decelerate again before lockout. So those are the four points they look at. Start of the concentric, uh, first peak concentric velocity, minimum concentric velocity, and second peak concentric velocity. But none of those are the most important part uh, in the concentric phase of a lift that you're grinding, grinding through. The most important part is the point of peak deceleration. That's going to occur after that first peak in velocity, but before minimum bar velocity. So force is mass times acceleration. And so when the bar is decelerating at its peak rate, that is the point at which you're applying the least amount of force to the bar. That's why it's decelerating at its maximal rate. So if you're interested in investigating, you know, what gets hard about a lift? Why are people failing where they fail? What's contributing to that? That is really the the time point that you you want to be able to focus in on because that's that's where the wheels start falling off. That is where where people are producing the least amount of positive concentric force. Um, and so uh, Stian was uh, the first person I've seen who's who's actually documented that uh, in any of the power lifts in research. So so props to him for the paper. Uh, and then also, just to talk about the findings a little bit, uh, basically they they took people who had uh, prior squat experience, I think worked them up to a, a three rep max squat, uh, and then looked to see kinetics, kinematics, EMG uh, on the last rep uh, where they were, you know, really grinding pretty hard. Uh, and, and they basically found that from, from the, the point of, first peak velocity to the point of minimum bar velocity. So basically that that defines the beginning and end of the sticking region. What you basically see in the squat is just the whole thing getting more and more hip dominant, both the kinematics, so you know joint angles, segments, position, and space. Uh, so both the kinematics and uh, EMG findings bear that out. So basically you see 
relatively flat quad EMG from the start of the concentric to the end of the sticking region. Uh, you see ramping up uh, EMG levels for the hip extensors, so they looked at the, the hamstrings and the glutes. Um, and they, they also looked at, uh, so they calculated a metric that was the total, uh, like the, the sum of the joint moments present, and then what percentage of that was being contributed by the hip extensors, what percentage of that was being contributed by the knee extensors, what percentage of that was being contributed by, uh, which one's plantar flexion, which, which one's dorsiflexion? Dorsiflexion is toes pointed towards the ground, right? Plantar flexion. Here's the way I always think I, of it. I always, I always forget that one. Plantar flexion is when you point your toe, and dorsiflexion is when you dig your heel in. Okay. Okay. That's what I thought. Uh, so, yeah. Also, plantar flexion uh, contribution to the to- totality of joint moments. And so, what you see is throughout the sticking region, basically, the relative contribution of the hips is going up, the relative contribution of the calves basically flat and relative contribution of the quads going down. Um, so that, I mean, that's, I, I think something that most people kind of intuit, that's something I've been talking about forever. Um, and w- one of the things you can see is the the total uh, knee extension moment that the quads are producing um, is going down pretty precipitously as the concentric starts, and it's quite low by the end of the sticking region. One of the cues I've been giving forever, or, or one of the pieces of advice, is that to get through the sticking region of the squat, one of the things that helps a lot is you want to get your knees forward and your hips back under the bar. Very much seems like when people fail a squat, it's because basically the hip extension moment or the hip flexion moment created by the bar is greater than their hip extensors can overcome. Uh, And you kind of wind up with a reserve of what the quads are capable of doing by the time you get to the end of the sticking region. So basically, um, you know, your, your quads or your knees tend to shift back a little bit as you start the concentric. Uh, Your quads are doing about all they can out of the hole. But then as you near the end of the sticking region, generally at that point, your quads have a bit more juice than they are at that point capable of contributing to the squat. Just because your knees have gotten out of position, they've shifted back a little bit too far. So if you can just tick your knees forward half an inch, uh, that tends to be all it takes for most people to uh, get the bar moving again and break through the sticking region. So that's uh, it, it, it kind of looks like a hip scoop almost like, like the second pull of a clean, uh, if you've watched much weightlifting, um, anyway, cool paper. Uh, and for other researchers out there, if you want to look into the sticking region of really any lift, um, document what's going on at the point of peak deceleration. Cause that, that really is, uh, the weakest point in the lift. And you know, that's, that's a good place to have information about. Can I ask you a deeply personal question? Sure. So I have noticed that you, you've you reviewed a lot of this researcher's papers lately. And every now and then I think about like if, if somebody just gave me the keys to a lab and said, Eric, you're a professional researcher now. You know, I, I sometimes think about like, okay, what would I do? You know, what would my major lines of research be? Uh, 
So if you had to pick, is he like your your research avatar? Is he doing what you would be doing in that scenario if you just had the keys to a lab and were free to study what interested you? Or is there someone else out there doing more more stuff that's in line with who you would be? I'd probably do training studies. Yeah. I mean, in the real world, I wouldn't because that's a lot of work. <laughs> but, but in terms of... Uh, what I think probably offers the most value that if if I were a better person, what would I do? Probably that. Yeah, I, I think um, <laughs> now this is out of character because I, I hate when people, you know, kind of play the card of, you know, you don't have enough experience to have an opinion on something. But I do think anyone that's harshly critical of training studies, uh, especially if it's without justifiable, uh, you know, without good reasoning for being so critical. It's like you really ought to run a training study and, and just live in the pain that is running a training study before you get too many hot takes about them. Cause they, like you said, they are, they are brutal. So huge tip of the cap to everyone out there running training studies. Cause we need them. Uh, but man, it's, it, it's a tough, it's a tough job to have for sure. Absolutely. Uh, okay, uh, moving on, a paper by Cuthbert and colleagues looking at, uh, it, it's a training frequency meta-analysis. So the title is Effects of Variation in Resistance Training Frequency on Strength Development in Well-Trained Populations and Implications for In-Season Athlete Training, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, so this is going to be very quick. I used to be a pretty big proponent of higher training frequencies, both for, for hypertrophy and strength development. Um, previously, that was the direction the research was leaning. Um, but as more papers have been published, and especially more papers in well-trained cohorts, uh, we're seeing that especially in, in folks with prior training experience, it doesn't seem like frequency uh, has all that large of an effect, if any effect at all. Um, so this meta-analysis included uh, 10 studies with trained subjects uh, looking to see whether higher or lower training frequencies um, had a differential impact on both upper and lower body strength development, found that it didn't. Um, the frequencies represented by these studies spanned all the way from uh, one session per lift per week up to nine sessions per lift per week. Uh, which is very high. Um, and yeah, we found that frequency, as long as volume is equated, frequency doesn't seem to have uh, much of an impact on strength development. I will say that um, I, I do still think that the research in this area is somewhat limited by practical constraints. So, you know, for example, um, if your ideal weekly volume for a given lift or given muscle group is quite high, that may simply not be doable in a single training session. Um, I, I kind of think the positive benefits you accrue per set uh, decreases over the course of a session such that, you know, if, if you're doing uh, like five sets versus 20 sets, I think what you're getting out of the first set is probably the greatest of any set. And what you're getting out of the fifth set, like the marginal benefits you get from that fifth set, probably greater than the marginal benefits you'd get from a 20th set. Um, and so over kind of like low to moderate weekly training volumes, 
you know, that that seems to come out in the wash. Uh, but if you're someone who does just tend to respond better to higher total weekly training volumes, uh, you know, th- that may still lend itself to higher frequencies. And I, I think that if you're someone who, for whatever reason, maybe you've just found it works best for you, maybe you just like it, uh, you know, you're going to be training with high volumes. I'd much rather do eight sets of squats three times a week than 24 sets of squats in one session. Most people don't need that level of volume in the first place. But so basically what I'm getting at is is I do think that there are still practical reasons someone may favor higher training frequencies either for themselves or their clients. Uh, but again, especially for fairly low to moderate uh total weekly training volumes doesn't really seem like frequency has that much of an impact on strength gains uh, in trained lifters. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. I have three more I'm going to talk about. These three are going to be very quick. Uh, This next one is more of just a shout out than a review of a paper. Um, So the, the title of this paper is History of Strength Training Research in Man. An Inventory and Quantitative Overview of Studies Published in English Between 1894 and 1979 by Nuzzo. Uh, So this is an open access paper. And if you're someone who is interested in the history of strength research, this is the thing to check out. Uh, It is incredibly in-depth. It's super long, has almost 400 references, And it's just documenting trends in strength research from 1894 to 1979. Um, I'm personally going to refer back to this paper when... So I've been planning on writing something about isometrics for a while. Um, And one of the issues I've run into is I knew that there was a lot of research on isometrics back in the 60s and 70s. But... um, like databases like PubMed don't don't index older journals and older studies quite as well as more recent stuff. Like uh, the the databases that you'd search, they get a little bit spottier as you go further and further back in time. So I, I had a hard time uh, wrangling up those references that I knew to exist. But anyway, they're all in this. <laughs> they're all cited in this paper, um, and that that's the case for all of this old school strength research. Um, so, so this is quite frankly, a staggering work of documentation. Um, personally, the thing that jumped out to me the most that, uh, (laughs) just in terms of how things have changed over time was there was a little bit, uh, looking at authorship and how many papers people used to publish and how many authors used to be on each paper. Um, so Richard Berger, uh, was the leader over this time period with the most first author or sole author publications with 12, uh, which, you know, I w- what would you say, Trex? That would be like a pretty impressive like PhD campaign these days. Well, you know, so, so are, are, th- are these studies all longitudinal training interventions? Um, I don't think think they were because yeah i mean if, if it was if you include things like you know little supplement studies here cross-sectional strength evaluations there then yes absolutely uh you know for sure i, I think that would be accurate um but yeah i mean I, it, to your point uh 
12 for a career. I mean, I mean, yeah, if you're applying for tenure and, and you've got 12 these days, you're probably, you're probably sweating depending on what, what institution you're at. Yeah. It, mm, it may have just been longitudinal studies, but e- even, even then, like if, if that's something you do 12 over the course of a training career. Yeah. Um, which to be clear, I'm not necessarily dunking on that. One of the one of the themes we come back to on the podcast all the time is that um I I think a lot of science that gets done not not trying to be too critical. I think a lot of things that that get done might get done to pad CVs more than answer a question as well as possible. And so you know there there is a world and i think it is this world where 12 really well done training studies could provide a lot more value than 50 kind of normal training studies yeah yeah the um the interest here is is not in comparing eras uh, but more just observing the trend and yeah. looking at like you know, I agree with you. I mean, if, if someone said, "Hey, looking back at my career, i did 12 incredible papers or i did, you know, 31 that were pretty shoddy because i had you know professional uh benchmarks to meet give me the 12 every time you know but yeah it it is interesting to see how the business of being a scientist has changed yeah so uh number one on the list richard berger with 12 uh next was philip rash with nine uh and then it was six and fewer for everyone else over this almost 100 year period one of the names that jumped out uh, honestly, feel bad for the guy, Carl <laughs> Klein. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> I'm sure he is. I feel for you, buddy. Um, so he he published six papers. Uh, the third most prolific uh, publisher of strength training research of this area. Uh, pioneering work in strength training for knee rehab. Published six papers that got a total of five citations on them, which. Honestly, that's kind of wild to me because that, I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, if you look at really any like rehab literature, resistance training type stuff to to restore function after injury, that's, I mean, that's where the field is, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Klein was one of the pioneers there and apparently his papers just never got cited, which... It's very sad, very bad. It's almost like uh, those artists that you hear about that never enjoyed fame during their lifetime, but then like become wildly popular way later or well, something. Well, I mean, his papers still aren't getting cited. I know, but <laughs> it's, but I mean, just the idea that like a long time ago, he was like, ah, knee, re- knee rehab, maybe you should lift. It, it would be like if someone else invented cubism and then Picasso said like, hey, this is cool. I'm going to do this. And then no one ever heard about the guy that actually started it yeah that that is a more direct analogy um but yeah anyway we we appreciate carl and his contribution shout outs to carl klein uh one of the other trends with authorship that i thought was was kind of wild was uh the shift in number of authors per paper and this is one where i'm going to take a more direct shot uh if you so if you're an author on a paper one of the things that you have to certify is basically that you made a pretty large contribution to the paper in conception, analyzing the data. Uh, I don't even think you're supposed to be on a paper just for collecting the data. Um, like it's it's 
you know, th- there has to be some sort of pretty substantial intellectual contribution to the work being done. And I don't know, some some papers that are out there where there's there's some really heady shit going on, like, I don't know, m- maybe you need 12 folks to really hash out all the details, think through everything. Uh, but I mean, I don't know, there's there's a lot of papers getting published that you see have like a dozen authors and... I mean, most of them are probably just the grad students that collected the studies and, you know, they they probably need those pubs on their CVs to have a good chance of getting a job, getting into a PhD program. But uh, I don't think that meets the spirit of those authorship requirements. But anyway, when you go back and look at these older papers, uh, almost 45% of them were single author papers and fewer than 5% had five plus authors. (laughs) And, uh... Yeah, just just compare that to the sheer author counts on studies getting published these days. Uh, pretty pretty stark difference. And I mean, a, a lot of that is just norms shifting over time. Um, but I I do think that it's I don't know. I I think that it creates a bit of an unlevel playing field where if you uh, say work with an advisor that has more of kind of like a, an old school traditional view of authorship, you know, they may be less likely to put you on a type of paper for or put you on a paper for the same type of contribution that someone else has gotten their name on a dozen papers for. Um, so yeah, I, I think that a single standard is probably ideal. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily averse to more lax authorship requirements so such that people who do you know still have their hands say in like data collection get some recognition for it help build up their cv but the fact that it does differ so much place to place i think is probably less than ideal um and it, it is definitely a big big shift that has occurred over time yeah you do not see a lot of single author papers these days unless they're like a narrative review yeah you know you you see plenty of those but outside of that you do not see a lot of that anymore yeah anyway so that that was a really cool paper and if you're interested in the history of strength training research you should check it out uh all right next one by steel and colleagues uh our boy pack was an author on this paper i assume he made a very large intellectual contribution to it uh title is the impact of coronavirus, parentheses, COVID-19, related public health measures on training behaviors of individuals previously participating in resistance training, a cross-sectional survey study. Uh, so basically what, what this paper was doing, uh, just a survey sent out to a lot of folks said like, hey, if you were previously lifting before, are you still doing some training? If so, how has that training changed? What did it look like before? What does it look like now? Uh, but you know, I mostly just wanted to pull a very positive nugget out of this study. I was concerned that when Jim shut down, a lot of people who, you know, are, are really into the barbell would say like, ah, fuck it. Like if I can't get under a heavy bar, like it's just not worth it. Uh, I'm just not that into it. But apparently 83% of people who were training before continued training, mostly just started lifting at home did bodyweight training, higher higher rep stuff. Uh, probably a lot of them set up home gyms to facilitate more or less normal training. Uh, but yeah, yeah, 83%, so about six in, 
is that six and seven, five and six, whatever, uh, a hefty majority of people who were training before uh, continued to keep training pretty consistently uh, after gym shutdown. So that's a very, very positive thing in my book. Very positive. Um, not surprising uh, from my perspective as someone who had a full roster of clients um, at the exact moment when the entire world shut down. Because like for a while at the beginning of everything. We were planning for the apocalypse. Yes. The, the coaching apocalypse. Yes. Um, but yeah, so like for a while, I don't, I don't think, well, for a while, I'm certain that people didn't appreciate the broad impact that COVID was going to have. It seemed like something that was isolated. And then it seemed like in an instant, the entire world said, oh, we're all going to be impacted here. And, you know, I, I had clients at the time spanning several continents and it seemed like everybody in an instant shut down. And like my entire roster of clients used to train in the gym and as of like that day, no longer had access. And I was like, okay, let's see what's going to happen here. And I, you know, of course had that same thought that a lot of people are going to think if I can't get into the gym under a heavy, heavy barbell, I'm not that into it anymore. Um, but, but I was really impressed by uh, the resiliency in it. All my clients who said, all right, I've got um, one rubber band and a 35 pound dumbbell. What do you got for me? <laughs> and I know, I know a lot of people that were coaching at the time, online coaching, who uh, there was like a, a one week period there where you had the, uh, the tall task of converting every single one of your clients on your roster to a completely customized program to whatever the hell they had access to. Um, but, but yeah, in that scenario, I was so impressed by the number of people who said, all right, let's keep going and figure this thing out. And so uh, before that experience, I would have been shocked to see 83%. But after that experience, 83% sounds very correct. I mean, I, honestly, I I felt that that was probably just selection bias. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the folks who are willing to pay for a coach might be a bit more invested in the whole resistance training process than the typical person true um and so one of the things that i've been interfacing with a lot is the subreddit for people who've bought the stronger by science programs and there have been quite a few threads of people being like oh yeah gyms are opening back up uh you know first month of lockdown i did some some push-ups and some table rows but if i'm being honest i haven't done anything in the last like four months um so I, I was, I didn't know how representative that was, but I thought that that might apply to more than one in seven people. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, so so 83% of people sticking with it, pretty good uh, and, and better than I expected, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and then the last uh, paper I'm going to talk about in my research roundup uh, effects of non-nutritive sweeteners on body weight and BMI in diverse clinical contexts, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, so, you know, not going to talk about this one in a ton of depth. They did a lot of sub-analyses that I'm not going to get into, uh, but this was a meta-analysis looking at studies that lasted for at least four weeks. So they, they all had a longitudinal component uh, where people were either given a non-nutritive sweetener or, in other words, an artificial sweetener uh, versus sugar, no intervention, or water. 
and they wanted to see the impact that a non-nutritive sweetener would have on body weight and BMI compared to those other interventions. So uh, when they split things out a little, so in the main meta-analysis, they just looked at non-nutritive sweeteners versus everything else, uh, found that it did have a small positive impact on body weight, so either larger decreases in body weight or smaller increases in body weight. Then they split that out further and basically looked to see non-nutritive sweeteners compared to water, compared to no intervention, and compared to sugar. And basically, the impact of non-nutritive sweeteners was uh, not statistically different from either no intervention or water, meaning that, you know, compared to things that don't have calories, sweeteners that don't have calories don't seem to have a differential impact on body weight or BMI. Compared to sugar, non-nutritive sweeteners did have... uh, were associated with a decrease in either greater losses in body weight or smaller increases in body weight uh, compared to sucrose. One thing to note, though, about this meta-analysis, it it said it was a meta-analysis of non-nutritive sweeteners. It was a meta-analysis of aspartame because pretty much all <laughs> pretty much all non-nutritive sweetener research is on aspartame. My favorite. I'm a big sucralose stan. Uh, Splenda is the brand name. You're not going to catch me buying Splenda because you can buy the Walmart brand for cheaper. It's just as good. But anyway, I, I'm a big sucralose head, uh, as it were. There was only one sucralose study included in this meta-analysis, and it actually had the largest positive effect size. So uh, when compared to sucrose, um, sucralose w- was associated with the largest uh either decrease or smaller increase in body weight observed in the entire meta-analysis. So I'm going to take that one study to the bank uh, and just assume sucralose is exceptionally good even when compared to other non-nutritive sweeteners, even though it is nowhere close to time to make uh, that sort of conclusion. But anyway. Scientific principles be damned. Correct. Confirmation bias is truly delightful. Correct. Absolutely. But yeah, so... uh, you know, if you don't like artificial sweeteners, no one's making you use them. Uh, if you find that artificial sweeteners are nice, you have a sweet tooth. They help with dietary adherence. Um, w- one of the claims that I frequently see people make is that like, oh, yeah, like artificial sweeteners, they're better than sugar. But, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, you're better with sticking with just water uh, when compared to, say, maybe adding some Splenda to your coffee. There doesn't seem to be strong evidence for that. Water and artificial sweeteners in longitudinal studies seem to have similar impacts on body weight um, and artificial sweeteners, as they are intended to do, uh, have a positive impact compared to sugar. So, you know, if there's something that you're typically sweetening with sugar that artificial sweeteners can be subbed in with and you're trying to lose weight... uh, you know, that's a that's a sensible substitution to make. Uh, and this meta-analysis suggests that these artificial sweeteners do do what they are supposed to do and help people lose weight. Yeah, people beat up on artificial sweeteners and it's it's largely unjustified. You know, people have concerns uh, about things like, uh, like glycemic control. Or, or compensatory eating behavior. Compensatory eating behavior, yeah. yeah I think people... Um, 
I think people trick themselves into believing that our th- their body is far more poorly regulated than it truly is. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh man, if there's something sweet and not a, a load of like 30 grams of, of glucose following it, my body is just going to freak out. And it's like, no, your, your body will be all right. Like it, mm-hmm. it will continue to manage your glycemic responses very effectively. Uh, same thing, you know, oh, if I sense that sweetness, but there's not, you know, 200 calories with it, I will seek those 200 calories to make it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like, thank God we don't have to manage our body with that level of precision. Well, but... and, and there is some uh, acute research suggesting that that might happen to some degree. But the, well, but the the fact that we're we're seeing longitudinal decreases in weight and, and BMI in, you know, studies that are lasting four plus weeks rather than one afternoon suggests that, you know, if that happens the first time you use a non-nutritive sweetener, that's not a compensatory behavior probably that continues long-term. And and the magnitude of of those, you know, there have been some individual studies looking at like some type of a glycemic response, but not as if there was, you know, a huge perturbation or Mm -hmm. some degree of compensation with a single meal. But a lot of times you'll hear people uh, kind of asserting, oh, you, you, you start using these artificial sweeteners, you start overeating all over all other aspects of your diet, all of a sudden you're gaining weight because of the artificial sweetener. Those types of concerns just simply don't bear out in, in the research that's done. Um, all right, moving on. Let's do it. So I am going to move on to the Coach's Corner segment for a quick little uh, practical tip that uh, relates to something I've been training through. Uh, Then we'll probably have time for maybe a couple Q&A questions, uh, and then we'll be wrapping things up for the day. So in the coach's corner, so I'm back into the gym, which I'm stoked about. Uh, Really happy to have all the different exercise selection, all the different equipment uh, back on the menu. It's been pretty exciting. but of course, you know, same old body. So a couple issues that I often train through, uh, I've got a pretty angry right shoulder. Uh, my biceps tendon tends to get really inflamed coming up through the shoulder. Um, I think it's because back, I've got an old football injury where I separated the AC joint and I broke the collarbone. And then I played a baseball tournament like three weeks later. Uh, <laughs> like that's my throwing arm. So it just never really healed right because I was stubborn and really like playing baseball. So uh, lingering shoulder issues, but I've also got an issue with that elbow. I, I get some of that clicking with that tendon down in the elbow. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, not very fun. And if, if I'm not mindful of it, it can cause some discomfort. So one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this is because it's a two-pronged issue that relates to pressing. And so I know a lot of people have pressing issues, whether it relates to uh, an old wrist injury, an old elbow injury, an old shoulder injury, or they just want to modify their pressing to uh, to make sure they're circumventing uh, anything from like that from developing over time, any kind of pain or discomfort or dysfunction. So uh, I've been getting pretty creative with my pressing and wanted to share some of the uh, the things that have been helping me, thinking that maybe it'll help some other people out there as well. So for me, with the combined shoulder and elbow issue, one of the things I have to be uh, really conscious of is uh, kind of my wrist angle or the way that I'm uh, actually holding the implement I'm lifting, whether it's a barbell, which kind of insists upon a specific wrist angle, 
uh, or dumbbells that have a lot more flexibility or different machine work. So I've been working with different uh, angles at which I'm holding my weights or kind of setting my push-up grip. Uh, and I've also been very conscious of range of motion with my shoulder. Um, so range of motion, of course, uh, you know, a simple way to reduce your range of motion on the shoulder is to just cut your reps a little shorter uh, on the eccentric, but also you can mess around with different angles of pressing and see what angles just feel better for your shoulder and prevent some of that irritation of the biceps tendon. So things that have been working really well for me and things that might be worth giving a try if you're trying to troubleshoot shoulder and elbow issues, low and high incline presses with dumbbells have been incredible. Uh, Like I said, the dumbbells give you a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of how you're gripping. You can kind of turn it into more of like a neutral grip grip press rather than having, uh, you know, your thumbs kind of pointed in toward each other, like with a barbell. Uh, And the low and high incline give a little bit of variety. And it's, it's the flat pressing that really uh, has a bit of an extreme angle for my shoulder that causes some irritation. So, uh, incline Smith presses have been great as well. Um, and when the incline Smith presses aren't working, uh, or if I want to get kind of a flatter pressing angle, I'll do kind of like a a fake board press where a lot of Smith machines, you can build in uh, kind of a safety or a stop mechanism at a certain point in the range of motion. So I've been doing a lot of flat and incline Smith pressing, uh, Smith machine presses, uh, but I've been stopping my reps, you know, maybe three inches off of the chest or something like that. Uh, reduced range of motion push-ups with dumbbell grips. So like I said, uh, traditional push-up grip can be tough on my elbow, also can be kind of tough on your wrist. So using dumbbells as kind of a, a grip uh, for the, you know, you put the dumbbells on the ground if they're flat enough for it and just holding those, that's been really helpful for me. Uh, it allows me to do kind of halfway between a standard push-up grip and like a, like a neutral grip push-up. Uh, so that's been helpful, but also putting a couple little one or two little yoga blocks on the ground where I, I touch my chest to them. That's allowed me to also adjust my range of motion on those pushups. So unfortunately I have to do like a ton of pushups when I shorten up the range of motion, but it's still been a, a really nice, uh, it's kind of a cool variation of the pushup because the more neutral grip combined with, uh, the, the shortened up range of motion it allows me to really isolate the pecs. I almost feel like I have this, like it's kind of halfway between a fly movement and a pressing movement, which is pretty cool. Just focusing on kind of almost feeling like you're trying to drag those dumbbells together to meet each other, even though they're not actually moving. Uh, and then of course, cable crossovers are, are a classic. They give you all the freedom in the world when it comes to uh, your angle and your range of motion. And then finally, uh, single arm medicine ball push-ups. So Having one hand on the ground, the other on a medicine ball gives you the the opportunity to do a really nice loaded stretch of the pec. Uh, you know, the, if you've got your right hand on the medicine ball, such a great stretch for that pec. Uh, and, and you can really adjust the range of motion side to side. So you can get to the longest or largest comfortable range of motion with one side and similarly do it the same with the other side. And you can kind of tailor it to how each shoulder's feeling. So that's just a quick rundown of, you know, as I've been trying to troubleshoot uh, multifactorial pressing issues, those are things that have really been bailing me out of what would otherwise be uh, a bit of a jam with my pressing exercises. So you want to move Sounds on good. and do some, uh, some Q&A questions? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do 
some quick Q and A. So I, I'm going to go with the uh, the top two solicited from Reddit and Facebook. Uh, so th- this first one I think is for both of us. Um, Smile Missile on Reddit asks, uh, "What is the most bum fucking ludicrous programming or workout you've ever heard of or seen with your own eyes?" Uh, so the example he gave is someone doing um, 10 sets of six reps, 500 pound ass to grass front squats, then following it up with deadlifts and cleans seemed very strong, um, whatever. So that I took it more, the answer I have in mind, I took it more as like, not what is the most impressive workout you've seen, but just what is the stupidest workout you've seen. That that was my impression when you read it out. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh let, let's go with that. Do you do you have any in mind? Um I don't know the exact numbers. Like I, I hadn't seen this question ahead of time to look them up or anything, but um, you know, the, the easiest answers that come to mind are it used to be very fashionable in American collegiate football for the strength coaches to like just do a workout that would give, I don't know, 11 team teammates rhabdo. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, just all of those pretty much um, like, yeah, the, it used to be that like once a summer, like every summer uh, when they're coming in for their big camps, it's like, Oh, okay. All my athletes are detrained because they didn't do stuff at home. And uh, yeah, let's bring them in and just do something that's completely inadvisable. And 11 of them will go to the hospital and, I will do my best not to get fired. Uh, I think that's becoming less fashionable, or at least I hope. But yeah, I mean, th- there's all, all those news stories are out there for anyone interested in the details. Uh, I will say one of the stupidest things I've ever done uh, was, so like like every uh, young person, I think, I did small of junior for bench. And it worked quite well. It turns out if you bench heavy a lot and you don't get hurt, your bench goes up a lot. It's pretty great. And then I did small of uh, base mesocycle for squats. And I was like, hey, that also worked for the similar principles I just outlined. And then at one point I was like, I'm just going to do them both at the same time. You know, like <laughs> I'm in a hurry. I need to get big and strong. I'm just going to do small of junior on bench and the base mesocycle of small of for squat, but do them like in an inverted uh, schedule so that my 10 sets of three on bench are my fewer sets for squat. And then by the end of the week, when I'm doing my 10 sets of three on the squat, I've got only a few sets of bench. I think it's like six by six. Uh, Dumb for just hundreds, if not thousands of reasons. Uh, But yeah, that was pretty dumb. All right, so I, I, I can one up you. This is uh this is really bad. So I, I'm going to uh give as few details as possible just so people can't go back and try to to reconstruct who this person is. Uh but I had a buddy that played high school in baseball or uh that played baseball in high school, and they had a really, really good pitcher on their team. Uh as a sophomore, he was already getting looks from big D one colleges. People were thinking that he'd probably get drafted right out of high school. Very, very talented pitcher. Um, And the school wasn't particularly a baseball powerhouse. Uh, So the number two pitcher on the team, not a very good pitcher. So this guy, um, he, he very much, he thought very strongly 
Uh, and keep in mind, we're not dealing with great decision making here. He was like 16, 17 years old. He felt very strongly that his coach should pitch him every game. And high school baseball, you know, you're generally playing about three games a week, give or take two or three. Um, but the the coach was pitching him once a week. Uh, seem seemed to be making pretty good decisions about a young arm um because you know pitchers had been getting tommy john surgery younger and younger and younger it's not terribly uncommon for that to happen in high school these days Uh, but his, his coach seemed to be pretty smart like hey i'm gonna pitch my ace once a week we're gonna lose a lot of games we'll win those games and that's fine this is high school baseball it's not life or death uh but this kid didn't have much perspective had a just a full-on screaming match with his coach before a game because his coach wouldn't pitch him, came to a fever pitch. Uh, and so his his coach suspended him from the team for a month. Like, hey, kid, like, you're a child. I'm trying to keep you safe. Um, you, you clearly have no perspective on this. So just, like, step away for a little bit uh, and try to get your head right. And so he used that... Uh, that time away from the sport to try to prove to his coach that his coach was wrong for not pitching him every game. Um, so he decided he was going to throw 500 pitches a day. Uh, oh my God. Every day over that month that he was suspended. Anyway, I think he made it longer than is reasonable. I think he made it through about a week and a half. Uh, and then he tore his owner collateral ligament. Um, his shoulder was really jacked up by that point as well. He he thought he'd just be able to push through it. Anyway, got Tommy John surgery again as like a 16, 17 year old child, uh, never fully recovered. And, uh, yeah, you've, you've never heard of this kid for good reason. I don't think he ever pitched at a high level again, man. Um, And just to give, um, some context when, when people start managing a kid's pitch count at that age usually if you're getting into the hundreds it's like you you got to get him off the mound yeah and, and give him a week to recover and then he'll pitch next week and maybe throw a hundred so the idea of 500 a day for people who are not uh into baseball absolutely is, insane it's absolutely insane i did uh so when i was in high school around that age uh a little bit younger actually um but i was in high school and I played for a team and we would travel to the tournaments and stuff and play several games in a weekend. And because of those pitch count limitations, if you had a pitcher or two who was unavailable that weekend, you were in a tight spot because you can't just throw your, your, the same guy for like 200 pitches. Right. Uh, and so every now and then people like me would have to pitch at these tournaments who I was not a pitcher. (laughs) I was like second base shortstop, but I had pitched, you know, in my younger years. So I, I could get on the hill uh, and, and, you know, throw the ball around a little bit. So they put me in for this game and they're like, all right, Eric, let's, you know, just try not to do anything too badly, you know, try to be generally okay. And uh, so I didn't throw very hard, but I had very good control of the ball. I could put it where I wanted it to go. And so I ended up, you know, I threw an inning, leave me in there. Things are going well Threw another inning, leave me in. And because I didn't throw too hard, I I don't think I could even generate enough force to damage my elbow or shoulder. (laughs) So I I threw like a 145 pitch complete game. Uh, We won it. And then here's the, the kicker. Three weeks later, we played that same team. We threw our ace 
and they pummeled him. <laughs> we lost by like eight. Uh, so from that point forward, even though I sucked at pitching, I I considered myself the best pitcher on the team. You were like a young Greg Maddox. Yes, that that'd be a charitable way to charitable way to put it. But one thing I did want to mention, though, you mentioned uh, Tommy John surgery in, in in teenagers becoming more and more common. Um, if you want to take a look into the dystopian world of uh, baseball recruiting, there was a time period there. I don't know if it still exists today, but for a while there, it was actually um, when people were recruiting you know, pitchers looking for arm talent. The fact that someone had Tommy John surgery was actually seen as a plus. They already got it out of their system. Yeah. So, yeah. so the Tommy John surgery, that UCL reconstruction had come along far enough that people were recovering pretty well in general. People typically did. And the, you know, the, the reconstructions of that uh, ligament were durable and so a lot of the recruits from major league baseball programs would say, awesome, somebody else paid for it, not on us. And uh, we can trust that that elbow is going to be good to go from here on out. So that alone is bad. But the part that is really dystopian and messed up is that parents, they're not dummies. They were getting word of that. And people were like, hey, um, you should go in and preemptively have a surgeon sever your child's UCL and then rebuild it better. Like people were going out of their way to try to get uh, <laughs> access to preemptive UCL reconstructions so that they could bring their kid around to all these uh, you know, baseball scouts and say, check it out. We put a brand new UCL on them. It's a great UCL. It's going to be there for 20 years. Yeah, you're just showing off that elbow scar like you're fucking Harry Potter. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, check it out. We, we did some, like, we look, did some here, updates. Here's, here's the boy who was promised. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. so bad. And like, I'm not a baseball insider. That's the buzz I heard in the sports medicine circles. Uh, not people who are, you know, tremendously informed, but I, I have heard rumblings of that. If it's, Total BS. That was just a rumor. I apologize in advance, but I, I it seems quite plausible to me. I've heard similar speculation about uh, Paralympic powerlifting bench pressers. Um, there are a few countries that absolutely dominate that, and if you look up some of the records, they're fucking crazy. The Paralympic benchers are so strong. It's ridiculous. So a, a rumor I've heard which I haven't been able to corroborate, which I haven't tried particularly hard to corroborate, uh, is that for some of those very dominant Paralympic bench press countries, they'll find people with talent uh, and a similar type thing. They'll uh, just detach and reattach the pec tendon a little bit further down the humerus. So the internal moment arm is longer and you can create more uh, shoulder horizontal flexion torque per unit of pec contractile strength. Um, which I mean, the physics check out, uh, yeah. if that's happening very bad, don't approve of it. Hope it's not. Yeah. There, there are also, you could do a whole show on this, but back in the day, uh, with Olympic athletes, there have been a lot of tremendously unethical things that have been done, uh, to, to, to try to give athletes a better chance of, of training effectively or performing better. Uh, you know, really invasive medical procedures that are just completely uh, despicable and not not okay. 
Um, but anyway, we need it. We need like a, a second good <laughs> good news segment or something here. Uh, uh, yeah. let, let's. What's the next question? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Jay Boykin fourteen asks, "Can you hit yourself into marathon shape?" Can you get into marathon shape just by doing high intensity interval training? Nice, easy one over the plate there. I like that. Not sure why he asked me, uh, but uh, I'm going to say no, but I'm also going to say yes if you go with a very loose definition of HIT training. Um, and I mostly just want to talk about one of the more impressive athletes ever that I think more people outside of the endurance training community should know about. And that is Emil Zatopek, uh, who was a, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name, uh, but he was a Czechoslovakian distance runner, uh, mostly a middle distance guy. uh, But he holds the distinction of being the only person who ever won the 5,000 meter, 10,000 meter, and marathon distance at the same Olympics. So in Helsinki in 52, 5K all the way up to marathon, he won them all. And I think the marathon at that Olympics was the first time he'd ever run a marathon. Um, so anyway, very, very impressive endurance athlete. Uh, he won five Olympic medals over his career, set 18 world records, Um So yeah, just a dominant runner from the late 40s, early 50s. And one of the interesting things about him is his training was very unique at the time. So uh, back then, most of the time, if you were going to run long distances, you would run long distances. And he was pretty famous for doing not all of his training, but a very, very hefty proportion of it, just as 400 meter repeats. Um... And so, like, a a workout for him, you know, might start with, like, some light jogging to warm up. And then somewhere between 20 and 40, 400-meter repeats. Um, The the first ones were more of a warm-up, so he'd run them uh, at, like, a minute 15, give or take. And the last ones were more of a cool-down. He'd run those around a minute 15. Uh, And then the middle ones were his real working sets, where he'd run them in just a shade over a minute, which... If you've ever run a 400-meter sprint anywhere close to all out, it fucking sucks. And then just run 40 of them. Um, So if you go with a really, really loose definition of what hit is, uh, Zadopek was doing something like that uh, and was a very good runner. Yeah, I mean, I I think if if you want to train for a marathon, you're going to want to put in some mileage. You know, you're going to want to... get acclimated to that style of running uh and get some of those miles under your belt but but i do think um oh that's the other thing about him by the way what so not only did he train with mostly just doing 400 meter repeats he was putting in insane mileage just doing 400 meter repeats so uh in i i believe 1942 no no so this was from a article in athletics weekly published in 1954 um he he was talking about just what his monthly mileage looked like throughout a year or i guess kilometerage um in march of that year he put in a total of 935 kilometers worth of 400 meter repeats which you can do the math but that's like that's like close to 150 miles a week right i have no idea (laughs) 
It's uh, the kilometer to mile thing is never going to work for me. Anyway, it, that's an enormous amount of distance. Which, if you're just if you're a high level runner and you're putting in over a hundred miles a week, mostly doing zone one training, that's still a lot of miles. Yeah. To to be running pretty fast four hundred meter repeats and that fucking many of them, that's insane. Um, so yeah, a, a combination of training at faster average speeds than most people and greater mileage than most people. It's honestly a wonder that he survived, uh, but he did and he was very good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to, just to, that is a very interesting story. I, I'd never uh, heard of that. that. That's good stuff. Uh, but to give a practical answer to the listener, um, that certainly would not be the default style of training uh, for most people who are trying to get into marathon shape. Um, we're really not the people to ask. I, I feel like uh, Zordos has run marathons in the past. He would be the person to to ask about this. But generally speaking, you want to get acclimated to you know pretty high mileage, uh, running at an intensity that's going to be relatively close to what you're doing on competition. Uh, you know, some people make a big mistake of doing too much mileage, run into uh, some overuse injuries in their training program. Some people also run into the issue of neglecting some of the higher intensity work, which which does come in handy as kind of a, a supplementary effort to uh, facilitate. You know, people think marathon, they think low intensity running, but there are going to be bouts where, where you're really digging deep and stressing uh, the glycolytic energy system. So uh, I think the ideal approach would be plenty of mileage, making sure that it's structured sensibly so that you are able to really acclimate up to the high mileage required, but supplemented with some of the higher intensity work. So I think interval training certainly can have a place there, but uh, unless you're going to be the type of runner that they tell stories about in 50 years, it's probably not the default style that you want to take. Correct. I I think there's some... uh, some athletes are unique in terms of how they how they do things and what they can get away with while still being remarkably successful. Um, that does remind me, though, the idea of doing all those repeats. Um, I might have told the story before. I can't remember, but we're getting to that point with a podcast where it's like, you know, your your grandfather who's just telling you the story they've told you 13 times, but you just got to let him go. You got to let him do it. Yeah. Um, so back in my day <laughs> exactly so uh when i was in high school uh the football coach was like hey this spring you should practice with the track team you know uh work on your high end speed that'll be good for for a defensive back i said sure that'll be great um so i go out to my first practice with the track team and you know this is you know these people are fast as a hobby and the workout was a bunch of repeated 200 meter sprints and uh and so I, I get up to the starting line and and I'm like, you know what? I can do anything that these chumps can do and I kinda wanna prove myself. You know, I'm I'm this visitor who's kinda jumping in on the practices. So I you know, I wanna make a good impression. I don't wanna be the slow guy from the football team. Uh so, you know, we get up to the starting line, ready, set, go. And as I expected, I, I leave those people in the dust. Uh, I, I really embarrassed them. It was pretty impressive. And for the next like minute, as we were kind of catching our breath, getting ready for the next one, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe, maybe I will be on the track team. You know, maybe I'll be the captain. I don't know. That'd be fine. Uh, I've got plenty of time this spring. Uh, I do the second one, beat the hell out of everybody. And it was going pretty well. 
about halfway through, I realized they were pacing themselves. I didn't know that was an option. Uh, My experience of sprinting was that you give 100% effort and then your effort just deteriorates over time. That was how they shouldn't have called them 200 meter sprints. Well, if you're pacing yourself, whatever the hell they were doing was not what I was doing. (laughs) By by the end of it, I found out I was not, in fact, the fact the fastest person on the track team. I was just the only one stupid enough to give a full effort on the first couple. And by the end of it, I was like about to throw. I've never thrown up from exercise, but that was the closest I've ever been. And uh, everybody else was just doing fine. And it, it was almost the fact that nobody told me, I think might qualify as hazing. Cause like they knew what was going down and I think they really enjoyed watching me, uh, physically fall apart in front of them. Ah, uh, that's, that's rough. Yeah. They, they should have given me a heads up, but, but for the, I mean, for those like two or three minutes, it was pretty incredible. Like I really believed that I was like probably the fastest person that I knew. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Uh, Okay, is, is that it for the, the Q&As? Uh, that's it for Reddit. I'm going to pull two from the Facebook group as well. All right. All right. So uh, Katie Ford asks, uh, what's the best tendon strengthening protocol? Um, also, not entirely sure why this is directed at, at us, but my understanding, so I, I'm getting this from uh, a talk uh, I saw Derek Miles give three or four years ago. I trust Derek, good guy. Um, and so what he was talking, and this this was a, a clinical athlete event uh, that they held in Asheville several years back. By the way, if you're interested in um, like science-based uh, physical therapy, rehab stuff, check out Clinical Athlete, a uh, very good organization. They definitely know what they're talking about. Um, and if you're interested in finding a... Um, a, a physical therapist that understands the demands of lifters. They have uh, on their website like a physical therapist locator tool where you can find someone who is kind of within the clinical athlete net- network. Uh, so that that's a good... If you live in the U.S., I don't know if they've gone international yet, but if you live in the U.S., that's, that's a good resource to be aware of. Um, and if you like beer or mountains, be sure to check out Asheville as well, which is where the event was that you mentioned. Or crystals. That's a throwback. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, what Derek was talking about was that basically it seems that just load and resistance is the important thing. Um, so the folks used to say that, say, isometrics were the bee's knees, and then they were talking about heavy eccentrics as being very important to tendon rehab and tendon strengthening. Uh, and now now it just seems like anything that um, is heavy enough that you have to move it pretty slowly probably gets the job done. Um, and so when it comes to strengthening your tendons, you just want to be putting um, a, a pretty high load through them that they can still tolerate pretty well. And beyond that, it's just a matter of load management. So if you're um, you know, if, if the total dosage of exercise or the frequency of exercise is such that the tendons can't fully recover and remodel after it, uh, that can cause degenerative changes. And if the dose of exercise is enough to adequately stress the tendon, but you let it recover adequately before exposing it to further load, then that helps strengthen the tendon. So, you know, 
and, and that dose is going to vary person to person, depending whether they're healthy or not, if they're not kind of where they are in the rehab process. But it, it seems to basically just be a matter of the total resistance you're putting through it, uh, and then just basic principles of load management beyond that. Um, let's see, what's the next most highly upvoted question? Oh, here's a good one. Uh, so M. Ake asks, uh, if you could redesign the presidential fitness awards to be science-based, what exercises would you torture kids with in gym class in order to determine if they were physically fit? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the other one we're doing. Do you want to take a swing at that? Hmm. I mean... Because it's not an area that is of keen interest to me, um, I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't have like a, a list of exercises off the top of my head. But like, you know, if I'm thinking of you know general physical fitness, let's say uh, maybe body weight bench for reps, body weight squat for reps, uh, maybe give me like. Uh, Give me like a 200 meter sprint uh, and maybe a broad jump, you know, I, let, let's get, let's get upper body strength, endurance, lower body strength, endurance, uh, the broad jump for, for explosive power and, uh, and yeah, yeah, something to test the anaerobic system. Um, I, I just, I want to say uh, that is like, if I was just, if someone came to me as like a you know, a person interested in fitness and wanted to say, Hey, you know, give me a fitness score. I, I don't think that there's too much value in the concept of the presidential fitness test. So I I don't want it to seem like I'm saying, Hey, we should make all the kids do that and then shame the kids who do poorly in it. I I think, uh, it's something that ought to be opted into, uh, for people who are fitness enthusiasts. And, uh, and, and that would be, uh, kind of my baseline assessment, I guess. But yeah, I, I the I listened to a podcast about the presidential fitness test that it was like, is this something that we need? And I don't think the answer is necessarily yes. What what was the podcast? Uh, I think it was you're wrong about. It was the one that you told me about. Was it maintenance phase? No, I, th- I think it's you're wrong about. Oh, I thought uh, I didn't know they they did one on the presidential fitness test. I think so. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought they did that on Michael's other podcast, Maintenance Phase. Uh, regardless, I don't think it exists anymore. Uh, so I, I did some very brief reading on this because um, I was like, oh, you know, that's that's a good question. I wanted to re- reacquaint myself with what is currently in the presidential physical fitness test. Uh, and at least according to Wikipedia, it it's not a thing anymore. They discontinued it in uh, the 2012-2013 school year. Um, and honestly, I think that's a positive because, uh, you know, ultimately I think the question is, uh, the, the question underpinning any sort of testing is like, why are we testing this? Why right. does it matter? Um, and I don't know necessarily what we get out of knowing what sort of shape every kid in the nation is in um, for for a lot less money and a lot less time. Uh, you could just do like just every year or so, just just fund several labs to bring in, say, 100 kids at random from, from their community, test them. And if you get an idea of where, say, like 
200 randomly or like 2000 randomly sampled kids are at, you can have a pretty good idea of, of what the nation looks like. Like that's, that's enough to establish normative values and it's probably not shifting all that quickly. So like, just fucking do it once a decade. That'll be fine. Um, so yeah, like ultimately I don't, I don't know that, that you really get, uh, that much valuable information from having every kid in the country do it every single year. So I, if it had not been gotten rid of by now, I probably would have just gotten rid of it. Um, and also like one of the things that one of the things that didn't necessarily occur to me when I was a child in doing the presidential physical fitness test, which uh, I became aware of because of I think we listened to the same podcast. I, I it may have been you're wrong about. I really thought it was maintenance phase, but maybe it was you're wrong about. Um, regardless, uh, listening to it, one of the things they talked about is how um, children with obesity and children with low levels of physical fitness found it like pretty embarrassing and like slightly traumatic. And I feel like that's probably not a great thing. <laughs> so uh, at a young age, like ultimately you're trying to hopefully help people establish a, a positive relationship with exercise and you know, if it's the type, so for people outside the U.S., uh, what we did growing up and what I guess every kid did from like the 1950s until 2013 uh, was once a year in gym class, you would be put through uh, a battery of tests that the Presidential Council on Physical Fitness said like, hey, we want to know uh, how good a shape all of these children are in, put them through these battery of tests. And uh, I think people who finished in the top 15% got an award. Um, and yeah, like, so one of them, for example, was uh, like a, uh, they have standing broad jump on here. I don't remember doing broad jump. I remember a shuttle run. Uh, regardless, th there were like a battery of tests and some of them, the class would all do together. So like they did sit-ups and like half the class would do sit-ups. The other half would like hold the kid's feet. Um, but then other ones, uh, like flexibility tests or like shuttle run tests or pull-up tests, like one person would be doing it and the rest of the class would just be watching them as they waited for their turn on the implement. Uh, and apparently people with, with low physical fitness just really, really didn't like that and it could create a, a negative association uh with exercise moving forward from there so yeah i mean i i don't think that that's ideal uh especially for people with low fitness you want them to like fitness more not less um so yeah I, i'd probably just scrap the whole concept yeah yeah and uh the other thing was like they would do the the presidential fitness test and they'd be like Good news, Greg. You suck at everything. You have like very low fitness level, and you should feel bad about that. And and then Greg, as a kid, says, "Oh, cool. What are we going to do about that? What's our our program to fix it?" And like, oh, nothing. But we'll see you again in a year. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. there, there's just no, there's nothing positive coming from it. There, there was they weren't like prescribing an intervention based on your results, you know? Yeah, like p people who are already doing well. It's like, oh, cool. You're uh, in good shape, but you and all of your peers already knew that and people in bad shape, it's like, Oh, you're in bad shape. You clearly knew that already. Your peers already knew that, but 
uh let, let's just make that as patently obvious as possible yeah so like i said i i just don't think we have a need for it um i, I think like fitness testing should be something that's opted into uh for people who want that information uh but one thing I would add to my battery of tests that I, I gave out there just for uh, for having some type of answer, add the two-mile run to that. Why? Because I didn't have an endurance me- metric, and the two-mile run was always my favorite distance to run. See, I, I'm looking through this, and I feel like when we did the presidential physical fitness test when I was in elementary school, we didn't do the actual presidential physical fitness test because I'm looking through this and there's... Maybe your gym teacher was like, screw it, we're doing our own thing. I mean, maybe. So what what I'm seeing the tests are is the 50-yard dash, 600-yard run, standing broad jump. I didn't do uh, any of this stuff. Pull-ups for boys, flexed arm hang for girls, sit-ups and shuttle run. Oh, I just missed shuttle run. It was on here. Um, but yeah, so I remember doing uh, the pull-ups, the sit-ups... And the shuttle run, but then we did we, we did, did push ups. Yeah, we did push ups. We did a mile run. Maybe it changed over time. I don't know. Who's to say? Well, it was it was never based on anything substantial, so it, it's easy to change things that have no uh, solid basis for their development. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they just tweaked it whenever they felt like it. So I think it was based on something. Either way, it, this is not the the time to do. <laughs> If you want a, more in, uh, info on the history of it, uh, we, we can link to that that episode. Yeah, and th- there's also uh, a good article on Vox. Title is A Brief History of the Bizarre and Sadistic Presidential Fitness Test. Um, apparently, it started because like these people who were high-level climbers came up with a fitness test. Uh, they administered it to a bunch of American kids and a bunch of uh swiss kids like back in the 50s and um and also austrian kids and something like 58 percent of the u.s children failed the test and only eight percent of the europeans did uh and they took that to dwight eisenhower and he said shit we got to do something about this also that's another thing that's kind of wild uh if you if you talk to anyone these days uh about like what type of shape kids are in. They're like, ah, back in my day, everyone was in such good shape and kids these days, ah, they're in bad shape. But like, that's been the narrative apparently since the 50s. Um, So who's to say? Man, I remember looking into this research a while back and basically like the scores on the presidential fitness test hadn't changed even as like... uh, activity levels in childhood were going down or at least on most of the tests suggesting that like maybe testing is pointless in the first place because you know kids are going to uh, go along kind of a natural course of development some will be in good shape some will be in bad shape and who know who knows why that happens and you know trainability is more robust after uh after puberty regardless weird stuff uh I don't have good vibes about the presidential physical fitness test. No, we are completely out of time. So uh, no time for the to play us out segment. You're going to have to play yourselves out today. What? No time for it. We got to go. Uh, we will be back in a couple weeks with another one, though, and uh, I'm sure it'll be great. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.